0: Welcome to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, Greg is forced to issue a formal apology for his previous missteps, followed by an impressive batch of new feats of strength. Then we discuss plenty of new research related to fructose ingestion, knee sleeves, and a variety of factors that may make weight loss harder or easier for certain individuals. To close out the episode, we've got a fantastic interview with James Krieger. In the interview, we talk about the insulin hypothesis, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, why you should or shouldn't measure your body composition, and much more. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. And today, and potentially for today only, I am joined by a very temporary guest host named Greg Knuckles.
1: Thanks for finding it in your heart to bring me back.
0: It. I did a lot of soul searching. I did a lot of thinking, a lot of talking with my legal team, and we figured it was best to give you one more shot. Um, Before we get into the fitness content, huge scandal, um, very, you know, enormous controversy brewing. We are getting roasted on our reviews, largely due to some errors in judgment on your part. So I want to give you the opportunity uh, to speak to the public and to make things right.
1: Yeah, so there have been some pretty scathing iTunes reviews after our last few episodes, um, mainly focused around my conservative, uh, family-centric, etc. worldview, and our mutual views on marijuana and whether or not it should be legal. Hint, it shouldn't. Um, So here's what some people have had to say on our iTunes reviews. So, direct quote. Came for some solid science, but in the first 10 minutes, they went full, the government knows best on marijuana laws, parentheses, in spite of co-host being a fan of craft beers. Remember Prohibition? Close parentheses. And followed it with, we're a Christian nation, and if you don't love Jesus, get out. I will say, that's actually a misquote, just to stick up for myself. I said, something similar, but not exactly that.
0: I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that, that's a strong defense, Greg.
1: <laughs> Got him. Uh, type comment. Uh, Thanks for getting the BS out early, I guess. I only wasted 10 minutes. Won't ever read or listen again. So, uh, cool. Someone else said, honestly, I love the science-based values you guys provide. However, on the latest rant about the cannabis issue and the whole bullshit Christian views, we had to unsubscribe with one star. Would have thought science-based individuals would use critical thinking about Christianity and government a bit better. Nope, both of you are pretty reformed? I th- I think that's supposed to be uninformed. Are both pretty reformed and ignorant to the two entities that actually control the mass. I assume that's masses. Uh, one being government, the other used as a tool for restraint. And finally... Well, short- if
0: I could interject, if they're suggesting that I think they're talking about mass, the monthly research review. I or, think they're suggesting that we, we are just kind of puppets.
1: Or, or maybe mass, the thing which one would cultivate.
0: I don't know. I mean, there's a, there's multiple layers to that review.
1: I think this person's saying that we need more government and religion to get big.
0: Probably. I mean, yeah. we
1: recently ran the episode with Ben Pollack talking about the roots of physical culture in the West being muscular Christianity. Mm-hmm. Maybe this guy's just a physical culture enthusiast. Might be. Anyway, last review, short and sweet. Weed is one thing, uh, but statement, if you have a problem with the laws of this country, you have a problem with Jesus. That's actually what I said. So this, <laughs> this reminded me. I didn't say if you don't love Jesus, get out. I said if you have a problem with the laws, you have a problem with Jesus. Get out may have been implied, but it wasn't directly stated. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this person says that statement is ignorant and culturally incompetent. So just to address all of this, um, I could get defensive, and I feel like I would be very much within my rights to do so, because this is yet another example of conservative opinions being censored. Uh, You may say, well, Greg, that's not exactly censorship. You still have a podcast that you're putting out to tens of thousands of people. Uh, But I would say it's essentially censorship, because people are publicly disagreeing with me which is essentially censorship and I think might be a violation of my First Amendment rights. Um, It's
0: definitely unconstitutional.
1: Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I could get defensive. I'd be very much within my rights to do so. But I will be a bigger person and read a statement. Uh, I want to be clear. I'm not admitting fault. Um, I was advised by my lawyers to not do so. Uh, because the forces of evil in this country might try to further silence my conservative viewpoints, but anyway here's my statement, which I hope will clear everything up. here goes. I am not at all sorry about what I said, but I regret if if it hurt anyone 's feelings so uh I hope that clears the air and <laughs> we uh we should be good right
0: i think I think we should be good um. I just don't know what it's going to take, Greg.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> sarcasm is baked into the cake with this show. so
1: B- But not in that last segment. No,
0: no, 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 no. Definitely not. Okay. So uh, another thing that is a, a permanent fixture of this show is feats of strength. So um, very, very long list of feats of strength here. A lot of people doing a lot of strong things.
1: So I I actually abbreviated it pretty substantially. Uh, IPF Single Ply Worlds took place recently, and I think eight world records got broken in the total. Um, I'm not going to read all of those, but I am going to um, talk about one weight class and a little bit of powerlifting history. But that's going to come last. To start with, though, the uh, super heavyweight untested with wraps total Uh, was broken recently. That sounds like a lot of qualifiers, but I think that's one of like probably the most prestigious records out there right now. Um, Just because like most untested raw powerlifting is done with wraps these days. Uh, Super heavyweights lift the biggest weights. Pretty cool. Uh, Milanichev has ruled that class since a long time ago. I want to say maybe 2013, 2012. Uh, Really once raw started becoming really popular again, he kind of took over that class and has maintained basically a, a stranglehold on it. But Daniel Bell recently broke his world record um, with almost an identical performance to milanichev's best. So Daniel Bell went uh, 42.5 kilos in the squat. That's 1,063. 260 kilos in the bench. That's 573. And 400 kilos in the deadlift, which is 881. For a total of uh, 1,142.5 1, and a half kilos, or 2,518.7 pounds. Like I said, that was a nearly identical performance to Milanichev. Milanichev squatted two and a half kilos more, but uh, Daniel Bell benched five kilos more, so he beat his total by two and a half kilos uh, with an identical deadlift. Regarding the deadlift, it was somewhat sketchy, and so I've I've seen some level of controversy about the performance. To my eye, it looked like he locked out his deadlift and then like his grip started slipping. So the bar started getting lowered. Um, And it looked like he got the down command before that started happening. And I mean, you know, the rule is you have to lock it out and get the down command. So it, it it wasn't a picture perfect deadlift. But I mean, to my eye, he got it up, looked like he got a full lockout. I'm personally happy with it people are entitled to their own opinions, not when it comes to marijuana, but when it comes to to lifts. Um, Another very prestigious uh, super heavyweight record was broken recently. That's the IPF single ply world record. Uh, Blaine Sumner has done it again. He is basically the god of single ply super heavyweight lifting, Uh, broke his own world record, which he previously set back in 2017. Squatted 495 kilos, which is a little bit over uh, 1,091 pounds. He benched 425 and a half kilos, which is 938. Uh, He has previously benched more in a bench-only meet, but I think that might be the heaviest full-meat single-ply bench ever. Um, And he deadlifted 355 kilos, which is 782 pounds, for a total of 1275 and a half, or 2812 um. So that's obviously super impressive. He's still the only person to ever total 2,800 in single ply. He's now done it twice. No one else has ever done it. He is an absolute beast in that class. Um, and then, so moving on from competition to Instagram, which might be what really matters, uh, one of my Instagram followers sent me a video which, uh, the lift itself was impressive, and then I saw how much the guy weighed, and it became st- stupidly impressive. Uh, so, a Turkish guy, Mohammad Raisi, R A E S I, uh, it was a video of him squatting 380 kilos, which is 837 pounds. Uh, the lift itself was a little sketchy. It looked a little bit high, and the spotter touched the bar slightly through the sticking point. It looked like it was going to go up, anyways, but like, crazy heavy squat, a little bit sketchy. His previous video was a really clean 365 kilo squat, which is 805. Uh, clean, looked to be convincingly to depth. Then I saw how much the guy weighed. And uh, He competes in the 82.5 kilo class, which is 181. And uh, the current world record in that class is uh, 788 by Tom Callis, set, I believe, in March of this year. Um and so like both of those lifts would break the world record. The kid's only 22 years old, I believe. Um and I looked him up on Open Powerlifting and he only has one meet in the archive. Uh I think he may have competed more, but Open Powerlifting may not have them in their archive yet, but he only has one recorded meet on there. Uh and he squatted 738 and a half or 335 kilos earlier this year, I think in, in like August or something. Um, so, I mean, he looks clearly good for 800 and maybe comfortably over 800, um, and seems to be improving very, very quickly. So another recent video of his, he was deadlifting 325 kilos, uh, got it cleanly. His best in a meet, I think is 295. So this is a kid to look, to look out for, um, like I said, he's young. I think he's he's only 22. He currently has the number 11 squat in a meet uh, in that weight class. Looks like he's gonna break the world record at some point uh, and seems to be improving very, very rapidly. So uh, Mohamed Raisi, it's a, a guy to to look out for. And then uh, the, the news story I would say from the IPF Single Ply World Championships is that uh, Kiel Bakalund, Won the 74 kilo class. The reason that is news is because of the person he beat. So he beat Jaroslaw uh, Olek, and that is uh, amazing. So was has been competitive the last couple of years, but hasn't been able to topple Olek. Um, Olek is like 44 or 45 years old. He hit his best total uh, at 42 years old a couple years ago. Uh, only guy to total over 2,000 pounds in that weight class, uh, totaled 908 kilos, which is like 2,001 pounds or something like that. Um, but he, like, he seems to finally be showing some effects of aging. His totals the last couple of years have been a little bit lower. Um, but this is the first time he's lost a full meat since 2001, and by lost, I mean he got silver. Um, (laughs) He, I think, also got silver at the World Bench Press Championships in like 2009. But he won the Open class for 17 years straight from 2002 until 2018. And he did that in some of the most competitive weight classes in the sport. So uh, between the 67.5 kilo class and the 83 kilo class. Um, He's also a three-time World Games champion. And that's even more impressive because Olek, like pretty much his entire career after about 2006, he has been in the uh, 75 and now 74 kilo weight class. He was 67 and a half before that. The World Games doesn't have as many weight classes as like a normal powerlifting meet would, um, and so the middle weight class for the World Games was 82 and a half, and now more recently 83. At those meets, he still weighed in as if he was going to compete at 75 or 74. Uh, So he was giving up 10 kilos to people he was competing against and still won three times in a row, um, adding to the 17 straight world championships. So that's essentially 20 world championships in a span of 17 years, Uh, which, I mean, in my opinion, makes him the greatest IPF lifter of all time. And at least in terms of sustained success... Maybe the best powerlifter of all time. Uh, the two other people who would generally come up in that conversation are Lamar Gant, who won 15 times in a row in the 56 and 60 kilo classes, and Hideki Inaba, who won 17 times in a row in the 52 kilo class. Um, the reason that... So, like, those guys are obviously absolute legends. I think a lot of people know about Lamar Gant because of his ridiculous deadlift exploits in lightweight classes. Also a very underrated all-around powerlifter. He at one point held all three individual records, squat bench and deadlift, in the weight classes he competed in. Um, But most well-known for his just absolutely insane deadlifts with absolutely gnarly scoliosis. If you've never seen a video of Lamar gant deadlift, you owe it to yourself, you should look it up. Um but he's someone who often gets brought up in this conversation for winning fifteen times in a row, and Anaba previously held the record for seventeen world championships. Uh Olek tied that. He didn't beat it since Bacalund beat him this year, even though he may come back and win next year. Who's to say? Um, but in my opinion Oleg's accomplishments are a little bit more impressive because one, powerlifting is just a way, way bigger sport now than it was then. Um, it's, I mean, I don't know the numbers right off the top of my head comparing current numbers in the sport to the early 80s, but I feel like there have to be at least five or tenfold more people in the sport. So he's competing against a deeper talent pool, uh, and he also did it in more competitive weight classes. Like, Anabo was absolutely impressive i think his best total in the 52 kilo class is still like top three or top five all time which is awesome um but there also aren't that many full-grown adult males who weigh 52 kilos that's 114 pounds uh the 67 and a half kilo class the 70 the uh 75 kilo class now the 74 kilo class those are all really competitive especially the 75 and 74 so Oleg won 17 times straight against you know, a deeper talent pool and in a more competitive weight class. So not to take anything away from those other guys, but in my opinion, Olek is probably the best single-ply lifter ever, at least in terms of sustained success. Uh, and the reason I'm going on and on about this so much is I feel like he doesn't have the name recognition and respect that he deserves. Like when when the GOAT conversation comes up, uh, you'll often hear Gant and Anaba come up. Uh, you'll often hear Ed Cohn mentioned. Um, there, there are several other people who may come up in that conversation if it is bandied about. You very, very rarely hear anyone bring up Oleg, um, which I think is absurd. Like his body of work speaks for itself, and so you know I'm sure he'll be back. But congrats to him for a great career so far. And, uh, congrats to Bacalund for being the first person since 2001 to take him down.
0: Okay. So I've got a new segment could be a one-time segment. I don't know, but I'm calling it hot off the press. The reason I'm calling it that I saw a study that was published online yesterday that, uh, is a bit relevant. It's, it's a question that I get a lot. I'm not going to do a really deep dive on the study, but it is one of those things where I saw it come up and figured, Hey, I know, uh, several thousand people that would like to hear about this. So the paper was called Metabolic Effects of a Prolonged Very High Dose Dietary Fructose Challenge in Healthy Subjects, and it was published by Smogis et al., and like I said, it was published yesterday. Now, the purpose of the study here was to investigate basically what happens when we give healthy people really high doses of fructose for a sustained kind of prolonged period of time. So they got 10 healthy subjects. They were 28 years old on average, but a big range. It was 28 plus or minus 19. That's a pretty huge variability there. Uh, And and you know that skews up. Yeah, yeah. Because it's
1: it's not like they have that many
0: 11-year-olds. Yeah, exactly. Um, BMI on average was 22. um, And what they did was they gave them, for an eight-week protocol, they gave them 150 grams per day of fructose. That's a lot of fructose. And the reason I wanted to kind of quickly report these findings is because I have a lot of people who who will ask me, "Hey, I really like fruit, but I'm reading on the internet that fructose, which is a, a you know one of the predominant uh, types of sugar in fruit, th- that's a misconception, by the way. A lot of people think that all of the sugar in fruit is fructose, and that's not the case. But but it is uh, a, a fruit is a big source of fructose in the diet. I,
1: I think that's because in a lot of well. I may be about to talk out of my ass. I was going to say in a lot of introductory nutrition classes, you learn that fructose is fruit sugar. Right. I don't know if that's taught in a lot of classes. That's what was taught in my introductory nutrition class. So I I assume that that's a somewhat common thing.
0: Yeah. People think of fructose and they say, oh, that's the sugar from fruit. Um, And I mean, table sugar and high fructose corn syrup and like...
1: Well, table sugar is 50-50, right? Sucrose, that's...
0: Yeah, it's half glucose and yeah. half fructose. So we, we get it all over the place. But people kind of connect it in their mind to fruit. And then by extension, they think all fruit sugar is fructose. And that's not the case. It's actually a, a mixture of multiple simple sugars. Um, but in any case, 150 grams daily, like I said, I get a lot of people who say, Eric, I like fruit. I don't know anybody that likes fruit this much that they're getting 150 daily grams of fructose from their fruit intake.
1: Unless like Durian Rider or Freely the Banana Girl are listening
0: to us. Exactly. Yeah. I And if so, what's up? (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to have you. Um, (laughs) No, but so could you do it? Sure. But the question would be why, you know? So in any case, what I really like about this is, um, you know, it's a, a controlled intervention where they really are pushing pretty much the higher limit that you would even consider like feasibly obtaining in a diet unless you're trying to prove a point basically um what they found uh like i said it was an eight-week intervention uh the people who th- they gave them this high fructose uh, intake what they did was they they saw that there was a lower intake of other dietary sugars um to kind of compensate for that not intentionally, but it's just kind of what happened. Uh, And they did not really increase their total daily energy intake in response to this intervention. They basically just kind of shifted their calories around uh, to accommodate it. Um, What they found was that ectopic lipid deposition and postprandial glycogen storage in the liver and skeletal muscle were not altered. They found that um, this eight-week intervention of very high fructose intake was not associated with any meaningful adverse metabolic consequences. So the big thing to keep in mind here is that these people were at a pretty stable energy intake. They didn't see a huge increase in total calories. Uh, body weight was slightly reduced, but not not to a major degree over the course of the intervention. Um, but basically, what this study shows in a nutshell is if you're a young, metabolically healthy person who is controlling your overall energy intake and maintaining your body weight at a relatively stable spot, fructose intakes even up to this really high number of 150 grams a day, uh, they they really don't seem to be as catastrophic as as you might believe when it comes to these different metabolic outcomes. So um, good news for the people who like fruit. And just to put that in perspective, you know, it's not exactly 50-50, but I think high fructose corn syrup in a lot of beverages is like, what, fifty-five, forty-five. So putting that those numbers in perspective, I mean, we're talking about like getting nearly 300 grams of sugar per day from soft drinks to match this level of fructose intake. So this is about as high as anyone worried about their health would ever possibly <laughs> approach, even if they had really high fruit intake. And the takeaway from this study is, as long as you've got all your ducks in a row for your diet, uh, in terms of making sure your energy balance is appropriate, turns out not that bad. It's good to hear. Okay, now Greg, I see in our very carefully constructed outline the next segment is is called only knee sleeve hypothesis. And yeah,
1: the- we can we can s- stick with hot off the press. Uh, oh,
0: okay, because these are two
1: pretty recent studies. So uh, there was a study recently published, title is Biomechanical Modeling of Deep Squatting, Colon, Effects of the Interface Contact Between Posterior Thigh and Shank by Wu et al. Uh, And so essentially what this study was doing is, um, as the title implies, it was biomechanical modeling. So you take uh, data that you've collected of people squatting, and then you kind of take data of How basically how thick hamstrings and calves tend to be. Um, Some tissue properties and you look and see if someone squats deep, how much are those tissues going to compress against each other? And then how is that going to affect forces on the knee? Uh, And so what they found in this modeling work is that uh, contact between your calves and hamstrings when you squat deep reduces patellofemoral and tibiofemoral contact forces in the kind of forty to sixty percent range, which is which is pretty substantial, um, and so this got me thinking. Um, this got me thinking about knee sleeves, and it got me thinking about knee sleeves because I get a lot of questions about knee sleeves, but there aren't there's vanishingly little research about them. I think there might be two or three papers, including one that was very recently published, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but yeah, there's a bunch, a bunch of papers that look at squatting in general uh, in both healthy populations and populations of people with musculoskeletal disorders. Um, just, I mean, it's, it's probably one of the movements that humans do that is the most heavily studied after, you know, probably walking, running, and jumping. Uh, but yeah, a lot of stuff looking at squats in general And there are a handful of papers looking at knee wraps as well. Not a ton, but kind of three, four, maybe five papers on knee wraps, Uh, but very, very little on knee sleeves. And so when people ask me questions, I can say like, well, okay, if we think through this logically, here's what I think would probably be happening. Um, But you know, there wasn't really research to point to. And one one of the things that you can, I guess, kind of surmise about knee sleeves, just thinking through things logically, is they shouldn't help you in the same way that knee wraps help you so knee wraps are they're super tight and they're elastic and when you squat down uh, as the material stretches it stores elastic energy and it can actually exert a knee extension moment to like actively help you stand up out of the bottom of a squat knee sleeves might do that to some degree but to a enormously lesser extent when compared to knee wraps and so when people talk about knee sleeves they'll often say like you know maybe it helps my squat a little bit but really it just helps my knees feel a lot more comfortable when i squat that's that's the common thing that people will say um and the hypothesis i've heard to explain that before is oh well it just helps lock in heat um and so it makes the joint warmer maybe it kind of helps your synovial fluid be a little warmer and flow a little better or whatever. Uh, And maybe that's what is making your knees feel better when you wear knee sleeves to squat. And I never really found that all that convincing just because blood flow to your legs is going to increase so much just from squatting anyways. So, you you know, maybe if you train in a really cold gym and you're only doing really low reps and you're resting 10 minutes between sets, Maybe maybe you're not gonna have enough blood flow to bring the temperature up in the joint, but otherwise I feel like you're not gonna get that much just heating benefit from sleeves. Or like it will probably raise the temperature of the joint a little bit, but probably it, it probably wouldn't be necessary. Like just exercising would probably bring the temperature up enough to have some sort of functional benefit if that is kind of where that benefit was coming from. Uh, but seeing this recent paper made me think that maybe what's actually going on is knee sleeves also affecting um, patellofemoral and tibiofemoral contact forces. And I'm primarily interested in the patellofemoral contact forces here because uh, when you look at the forces on the knee joint in the squat, really if you have healthy knees for the most part, like things should be fine. Um, But there's some research suggesting that the patellofemoral contact forces in the squat are are possibly high enough that they could cause uh, degenerative changes to the um, retro patellar cartilage, um, which, you know, probably not something everyone needs to be worried about, probably not particularly scary, but something that could potentially be a problem for some people. And so one of the things you know if you squat with knee sleeves is they do kind of like bunch up behind your knees a little bit. And so in effect, they would be adding to kind of what you get from hamstring calf contact. Uh, so if the the contact between your hamstrings and calves can reduce um, patellofemoral contact forces, adding knee sleeves into the mix might actually magnify that to further reduce uh, contact forces within the knee joint during deep squats. And so that is that is now kind of my working hypothesis for why uh, a lot of people just, you know, self-report that their knees feel a lot more comfortable when they squat in sleeves. To me, at least, that seems like a more plausible mechanism than, you know, just the knee sleeves heating the joint up. Um, and there's Maybe slight support for that. Really, really, this is just validating uh, things that people have been subjectively reporting for a long time. But there was another recent study, hot off the presses, uh, called Acute Effects of Knee Wraps Slash Sleeves on Kinetics, Kinematics, and Muscle Forces During the Barbell Back Squat by Sinclair and colleagues. Um, and in that study, basically they found that... Um, Wearing sleeves didn't really affect uh, kinematics of the squat to any meaningful degree, which is what you should expect because they aren't actually actively aiding in knee extension uh, really to any meaningful degree. However, uh, perceived comfort and perceived stability were greater when people wore knee sleeves on average than when they squatted without sleeves. Um... And not so much the stability, that's probably just joint compression, but the the perceived comfort, um, you know, that, that matches what people have been self-reporting for a long time. And like I said, I, I think that potentially has something to do with uh, reducing patellofemoral contact forces, um, magnifying what would already naturally be happening just from contact between the hamstrings and calves.
0: Very nice. Yeah, I, I got to be honest, I'm probably like the last person in the lifting world. I've never actually tried knee sleeves.
1: You know, I had never worn them until, I don't know, maybe last year, two years ago. Um, <laughs> I was never going to buy them. Uh, but then SBD and A7 both sent me some free pairs. Thanks, guys. Uh, they're both awesome. I like them a lot. The first time I wore them, I hated them. Uh, I'm like, I'm, I'm weird about touch and I don't like things to be sticky. Basically, um, like that, I think that bothers me a lot more than most people. And so, like when my knees would sweat when I was wearing sleeves, I really, really just did not dig that feeling. Um, and so the the first time I wore sleeves, I don't think I wore them again for like another two and a half months. Um, but then I was like, ah, I'll give them a, another shot. People seem to like them. Maybe I just need to get used to them. Um, and like, yeah, it's not a night and day difference. If I forget to bring my sleeves to the gym, I'm not going to catastrophize it. Like, I really don't think they affect my performance at all. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they do kind of make my knees feel nice. And and I don't have knee pain. Like I have, uh, to this point in my life, my knees have pretty much been bulletproof, which is nice. Uh, except the time when I was playing football and called a helmet to the side of my knee and tore my MCL. Uh, but otherwise, they've been good in terms of like dealing with lifting stress but uh yeah i'm like they never hurt but they do still feel better with sleeves if that makes sense
0: yeah now that i think about it i when i was like training for a powerlifting meet i did wear like uh i used to wrestle back in the day and sometimes mm-hmm. we'd wear like a cotton sleeve over our knee just to slide on the mat a little mm-hmm. easier I did wear those sometimes when they were just feeling really rusty, especially in the winter. Um, so, I don't want to perjure myself on the podcast. I have done that. <laughs> and there's probably videos of me squatting in them at, somewhere on the internet. But um, but yeah, for me, I, I felt like, uh, you know, it felt nice to keep them warm. There's no elasticity whatsoever for those kinds of mm-hmm. knee sleeves. But, you know, they were warm. And I will say they kind of mentally gave me a bit of a crutch. I was like, ooh, Look at these reinforced knees that are now squatting, Mm -hmm. even though realistically it's like there's nothing going on there. Yeah, yeah. One of these days I'm going to try it. It
1: might might improve the lateral forces. Your knee could withstand by two Newtons. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Yeah, one of these days I'm going to try the real sleeves, I think. Okay, uh, moving on. I've got a little research roundup segment, and our regular listeners uh, will know that the research roundup we talk about a small collection of studies we give kind of brief overviews rather than doing a super deep dive into any singular study and i've got a themed research roundup here and the theme is there's a lot of variability when it comes to how easily someone can lose weight you know some people have a tremendous amount of difficulty with their weight loss some people find weight loss to be a fairly straightforward and easy process and i think I find myself on uh, in the position that when I try to lose weight, it usually goes quite easily. And I would like to pretend it's because I'm simply better than everyone that struggles with weight loss, but I find that hard to believe. Um, that always kills me when, when people kind of struggle with the, the empathy involved there. And they're like, oh, it's easy for me. So how could anyone struggle with this? Well, I've g- found a collection of studies that help us begin to understand some of the factors that go into variability when it comes to you know whether or not you find weight loss to be extremely easy extremely difficult or more likely somewhere in between so on a previous episode we talked very briefly about a paper by ortega santos and colleagues it was called the key to successful weight loss on a high fiber diet may relate now i'm paraphrasing the title but it may relate to the gut microbiome Prev- Previtella abundance. I like started reading the sentence <laughs> r- verbatim and then I was like, I'm just going to pre- paraphrase this. Okay. The actual title, the key to successful weight loss on a high fiber diet may be in gut microbiome Prevotella abundance. And the idea was uh, based on your gut microbiome going into the study that seemed to dictate how successful this high fiber diet intervention was in terms of weight loss. And that kind of piqued my interest in keeping an eye on the literature for studies that also seem to indicate like what are some interesting things that might uh, relate to variability with weight loss outcomes. So a recent study by Holstein et al. I'm going to read the title with the actual words this time. Metabolic response to fasting predicts weight gain during low protein overfeeding in lean men. Further evidence for spendthrift and thrifty metabolic phenotypes. So the idea here was to look at the response to a 24 hour fast and see if that was predictive of how readily people gained fat when they were overfed for a six-week period. Um, so they had seven lean men that participated in the study. That's a small number, especially for a study with only one group. Um, but you're going to see why that is uh, shortly. Uh, so what they did was they, they measured their metabolic response to a 24-hour fast, um, and then they put them on this six-week overfeeding diet it was uh, 150% of their energy needs, but it was a very low-protein diet. It was only 2% protein, very, very low. Um, so that that is a caveat to keep in mind. This is not necessarily a typical diet, but I don't think it necessarily confounds the, uh, the conclusions that I would take from the study. Um, one thing to keep in mind about this study is that it was super well-controlled. So I mentioned they had seven people that actually, like, you know, enrolled and completed this thing. Um, They were admitted to an inpatient unit for 76 days. So 76 days in an inpatient ward here. And just keep that in mind when you look at studies like this. Like if I'm away from my home for 10 days, I go nuts because my home is designed the way I want it to be designed. Everything's set up the way I like it. It's my place where I'm comfortable and productive. Imagine enrolling in a study like this and just being like, ah, 76 days, I'm going to go stay at this metabolic ward.
1: Yeah, that's wild. That
0: sucks. Yeah. So huge thank you to the people that actually volunteer for these kinds of studies. It's really, really important.
1: Did they say how much the subjects were paid?
0: I, I don't think so.
1: I remember around the time I was in high school, uh, NASA was recruiting for a study where um, it was it was basically going to be, I believe, a 60-day bed rest study And they were gonna pay participants, I believe, twenty grand for it. Um, Whoa! Yeah. And so uh, that was my graduation plan if I didn't get into college. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the the reason the reason that's relevant is, uh, man, I think it took them three years to recruit for that study, even dangling twenty grand in front of prospective participants, which like. I mean, there are a lot of people who could really use 20 grand who are unemployed. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind like I graduated in 2010. I first saw the ads in 2009. That's when a lot of people were still out of work after the financial crisis. Big time. And uh yeah, and like I said, I'm pretty sure the study was 60 days. I'm going off of memory. Uh I haven't revisited this since probably 2011 but i want to say it was 20 grand for 60 days and they had a hell of a time recruiting for it so man they must have had quite the carrot to get people to stay in that metabolic ward for 76 days in this study
0: yeah and i don't recall the number off the top of my head but i do remember seeing that their enrollment period spanned a number of years yeah that they did report that that makes a lot of sense yeah um which is crazy because like, you know, the the typical study in exercise science, it's like, hopefully we can get our recruiting done in two months. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Now, to measure metabolic rate, they used one of these really cool metabolic chambers. It was like a whole room uh, wh- where they can measure your energy expenditure. They can also measure things like spontaneous physio- physical activity, which they they measure using radar sensors. And they can even get really sophisticated indices of your sleeping metabolic rate and distinguish that from your waking metabolic rate so um this was the type of study where it was just absolutely incredibly well controlled they spared no expense so so the data are are really quite reliable obviously the trade-off is the small sample size um they even went so far the the participants were videotaped daily while they ate their meals And then they reviewed the videotapes to make sure that they consumed exactly what they were supposed to. And then they took uh, direct measurements of calories from their nutrient intake, but they also collected uh, feces and urine and measured the energy content of their feces and urine at, at, you know, key spots throughout the study uh, to try to at least quantify some of the energy loss um, due to incomplete absorption of calories. So very, very thorough, very tightly controlled The results of the study, uh, during the 24-hour fast, total daily energy expenditure on average decreased by about 160 calories per day. During the overfeeding period, they gained on average 3.8 kilograms, but the really interesting findings here were in the correlations, okay? So what they found was some people, relative to the average, had smaller reductions in energy expenditure during fasting. Um, so basically, when they were exposed to fasting, they, they their energy expenditure didn't drop as much as the others, and those are the same people that had less weight gain during the overfeeding period. So they were less able to kind of downregulate energy expenditure during the famine or the fasting period, but they were also less able to store a bunch of energy during the feasting period or the overfeeding. So. these people are are pretty well equipped to successfully lose weight. When they go on a weight loss diet, they don't see, you know, a large degree of metabolic adaptation to slow them down. And when they try to overfeed, they're generally unsuccessful if they're trying to, you know, intentionally put on weight. So if you're someone who we talked about this last episode considers yourself a hard gainer, this might be the phenotype that, that describes your general metabolic activity. So you might do really well when you try to lose weight and you find it to be fairly uh, easy, not a lot of friction there. But when you try to overfeed to intentionally gain weight, your body might really ramp up its metabolic rate uh, and make it difficult for you to lose or to, to gain weight when you're trying to. Now, the inverse of that, some people had a pretty large reduction in energy expenditure during the fasting period. So basically, these are the people who would say, I caught the metabolic adaptation and I got it bad. You know, they, they go on this weight loss diet, big reduction in energy expenditure, and they struggle with weight loss. These were the very same people that during the overfeeding period, um, they they more easily gained weight. Um, So these are people who are extremely well equipped to deal with feast and famine cycles. So like, you know, now many of us are fortunate enough that we don't have to really seriously worry about food security. You know, generally speaking, you know where your next meal is coming from. Um, and and that 's a a very fortunate place to be and obviously not everybody 's in that position but uh you know especially in in fairly wealthy countries, that is the case. but you know, if we think back to a time where where having good stable fu- food security was just simply not realistic you know before supermarkets and grocery stores and stuff, these people would have been with this particular phenotype would have been set up really well, you know, when food is not available, they just downregulate their energy expenditure. When there's plenty of food around, they easily store fat so they can hold on to some of that energy for later. So these are people who are probably likely to struggle with weight loss and say, I don't know, I I, I did reduce my calories, but it's not working as well as I thought it would. Um, The only upside to that is if these people were trying to bulk up, they probably have a pretty, pretty easy time doing it. Now, we can't necessarily infer that they would necessarily have a really favorable response in terms of how much of that weight gained was muscle and how much was fat. But, you know, these people certainly wouldn't consider themselves hard gainers in the sense that they try overfeeding, and they just can't get the scale to budge upward. Um, so, so this is interesting, because, it, it, because of these correlations, it really presents you with these two distinct phenotypes. Some people who can lose weight fairly easily, but struggle to put on weight if they try. And then the the inverse of that would be people who really struggle with weight loss. But if they try to increase body weight by overfeeding, they're usually pretty successful at that. And, you know, Greg, you grew up in the gym culture. I did too. You'd always have that one buddy who was jealous of everyone that was gaining weight, right? And he's like, oh, I just can't do it. I yeah. keep trying. But you also had that buddy who would bulk like crazy and get huge and strong, but then he'd be like... Yeah, I tried losing weight again. It didn't, uh, didn't really pan out.
1: I was that buddy. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and I, I've
0: always been in the situation where I find cutting a lot easier than bulking, generally speaking. Um, so, so this is one of those things where you see the data and you're like, oh yeah, me and my buddies figured that out when we were 17. Right. But, but it is nice to see this really well-controlled research showing that these these differential responses to under underfeeding and overfeeding are indeed correlated and it gives you some hope if you're i'm I'm operating under the assumption that every human being in the world wants to be both enormous and shredded at the same time uh, and I refuse to accept that I might be wrong with that assumption everyone wants to be enormous and shredded that's my world view
1: i mean that's either what people want or they're lying to themselves
0: exactly again sarcasm's part of the show guys but um the good news is there's a high likelihood that you either find yourself pretty in the middle where you know you can kind of lose weight or gain weight with some degree of ease or at least minimal friction but if you do find yourself really hard or really far on one side of the spectrum or the other, at least half of the battle should be kind of easy, right? You should at least be able to bulk and then struggle to cut.
1: Yeah, you've got something going for you.
0: Theoretically, you should have something going for you. So there's some good news and some bad news. Which is nice. Yeah, it's nice. Now, uh, one thing to keep in mind, there's a very small sample. So for these correlations, there were only six people with complete data to use, um, but we 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 are talking about correlations in the 0.8 to 0.9 range so um the magnitude of the correlation in, in terms of how how well those data points fit on a line was pretty solid but there were very few data points um now you if you want to you can be the person that complains about nutrition studies not having good control saying ah they they didn't really manipulate all the variables that need to be manipulator. They didn't control every extraneous factor. You can be that person. You could also be the person who complains about sample size all the time. Say, oh, 12 people. What am I supposed to do with that? But you can't be both. You know, you have to either embrace like, okay, this was a very small study, but wow, kudos to them for really controlling everything. This is valuable. But like, it always kills me when people see the big studies with minimal control, and they're like, ah, useless. They didn't control it. And then they see a small study like this, and they say, six people, why would I care about that?
1: I mean, th- there is a, a third type of person with a very different criticism that very much applies to this paper. What would that be? They didn't even try to keto-adapt them. <laughs> and if they did, 76 days isn't anywhere near long
0: enough. Yeah, that that is that is the third group, and <laughs> you're just you're just trying to... <laughs> Completely, completely submerge the podcast. We, we've we done two enormous segments on keto, and we've always presented very fair viewpoints on it, and you choose to come in with a cheap shot like that and just invert the entire operation.
1: I mean, I, I'm assuming those people don't listen to our show.
0: Yeah, probably not. But this is just one more thing to add to the Greg Knuckles apology list. <laughs> Greg is going to get a, we're going to have the lawyers draft up another statement for him to read on the next show. Maybe
1: I will repeat my previous statement. I'm not at all sorry about what I said, but I regret, and this is the key word, if it hurt anyone's feelings. Correct. No fault admitted.
0: So the, the thing I would implore readers to do is when you see a study, don't just immediately say, unless there's 300 subjects that all lived in a metabolic ward for six months, I'm not interested. You, you, you gotta, you gotta give some, uh, you gotta budge a little bit on in one direction or the other. So I, I think this is a great example of a study where we said, you know what? Sample size is small, big deal. We're going to control everything tightly and get some really solid observations. And I, I think it's a really valuable study for that. Um, So that was just one of the studies I wanted to discuss. Like I said, the the other ones I'm gonna speak about in a little bit less detail. And the reason for that is because I'm about to very cautiously tiptoe outside of what I would consider my area of expertise. And the further I get away from that area, the less I generally speak. So I'm going to wade into waters in which I do not belong and uh, very cautiously share some results. So recent study by Buckland et al. The study is called women with a low satiety phenotype show impaired appetite control and greater resistance to weight loss. And so for this study, um, obviously the sample was all women and they looked at something called a satiety quotient. Um, And there, there are a few different ways to uh, operationally define satiety quotient, but the general idea is they are quantifying the degree to which individuals feel sated or satisfied in response to a meal. So they'll they'll see before a meal, how hungry are you? Or what is your motivation to eat right now in a numerical scale, they'll give a standardized meal, they'll measure it afterward. And they're basically saying who, who really has a big impact in their motivation to eat in response to this meal. And some people with a high satiety phenotype, they eat a meal, they're totally satisfied, low motivation to eat afterwards. Some people, they're a low satiety phenotype. Even after that meal, they're like, yeah, I'll eat more. You know, it just doesn't really move the needle the way you'd want it to. Um, okay, so the uh, the thing to keep in mind here is they, they divided them into low and high uh, satiety phenotypes in terms of grouping. And what they did was, like I said, this is a continuous type of variable, and they basically just kind of split the group. So we've talked in the past about how that is an approach people use that in many cases can be limited, you know, when you have a continuous variable and you chop it into a couple groups. Um, But nonetheless, you know, there are some instances where it does make the interpretation a lot easier. Um, What they found with this study to kind of put it all in a nutshell, the results indicated that people with the low satiety phenotype um, actually experience less weight loss during an ad libitum weight loss program. So there are these They could have been put on one of two weight loss programs spanning about 14 weeks. And what they found was whether or not you were in the low or high satiety phenotype designation actually was uh, relatively predictive of how successful you would be on that uh, future um, weight loss attempt. And so this is a pretty intuitive finding, but it is one of those things where we can bring people in the lab and, and measure some of these things that can be predictive of, you know, how well is this weight loss attempt likely to go? And so this isn't by any means a jaw-dropping revelation in terms of the outcome, but it is interesting to see in laboratory environments that we, that we can see this type of variability with responses to similar weight loss programs.
1: That, that actually makes a lot of sense. I'm blanking on the name of it. I just remembered. Uh, so there is a gene that people coll- colloquially refer to as the fat gene. Uh, FTO. Um, And it's like, so no single gene is going to have that large of an impact on uh, like obesity phenotype. But in terms of single genes that seem to be the most strongly correlated with uh, rates of obesity, FTO seems to be the leading candidate at the moment. Um, And one thing to note about it is when they've done well-controlled studies, they've they've done this a couple times, where they do, like, control everything a person does, like their standardized activity, their standardized diets. Uh, they look at weight loss success based on FTO genotype. Uh, it doesn't have really any meaningful impact on success of the weight loss. But uh, in, like, ad libitum, just free-living environments, uh, people with that particular genotype do tend to wind up several kilos heavier and it does seem to have a lot to do with hunger and satiety. So essentially it doesn't really affect metabolism. Um, like you know if if you were a robot and could you know stick to a plan hundred percent, that that particular genotype wouldn't really have any meaningful impact but it does seem to impact over time people's choices and behaviors because of the degree to which it impacts hunger and satiety so that that very much ties in with this study
0: definitely yeah and and the next study i'm going to talk about kind of adds another wrinkle to this so the next study is by yokum and spice yokum <laughs> and stice with a t i said spice because it makes I'm everything th- nice i'm thinking food um <laughs> this is a long title bear with me it, it's called uh Weight gain is associated with changes in neural response to palatable food tastes varying in sugar and fat and palatable food images, a repeated measures fMRI study.
1: I feel like they needed to workshop that one a little bit.
0: It's too long. I I got sidetracked in the middle of it. But anyway, that's what the title is if you want to look it up. So the the idea here is they did a baseline fMRI, and then they repeated that two or three years later. And fMRI is basically when they... uh, bring people in the lab. They do the, the MRI thing of the brain where it lights up with different colors and they say, oh, well, when we when we gave them chocolate, the I like chocolate region of the brain really lit up. That makes sense. So they're, they're, they just give a <laughs> stimulus. They look at which part of the brain gets really bright and colorful and they're like, okay, we see what's going on in that brain. That's pretty much the general principle. Okay. So what they do with the study is uh, they, they, they found that at baseline, some people had a hyper you know a really exaggerated response when it when it comes to the fmri uh indicators of taste processing activity um in response to palatable food and what they found was that the people who had this really exaggerated response uh, to palatable food were more likely to gain weight over that two to three year observation period so so the idea was um you know, it was essentially looked, looked to be a predisposing factor where the people who had these really big increases in this taste processing activity, you know, a really exaggerated response to good tasting, very palatable food that seemed to be predictive of weight gain over that two to three year period. Um, now they, they did repeat the fMRI stuff after that period. And they found that after weight gain, that responsivity decreased. So it, it, it wasn't quite as exaggerated after that weight gain occurred. So like I said, I I try not to talk as much when I start venturing outside of my area of expertise, you might infer based on my uh, description of how FMRI works. This isn't really my thing, but um, you know, you see that this hyper responsiveness kind of gets toned down after the weight loss. It was predictive of the weight loss, but kind of levels off after a while. I can't help but wonder if that's a good or a bad thing, just speculating. So I I could see you saying, okay, well, now that you've gained the weight, um, you know, maybe these palatable foods are no longer novel. And so your brain response to that isn't quite as exaggerated. Like during that weight gain process, you probably had exposure to plenty of palatable foods, one would imagine. And now you've kind of chilled out and kind of plateaued and been like, yeah, it's not as special as it used to be but i could also i also wonder if it might possibly be a driver to kind of seek that rewarding experience even more where you're like man having those palatable foods doesn't really give me the that response i used to get maybe i'll have more of them or go for even more palatable food combinations. I, I really don't know what to make of that. This is just me recklessly speculating.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it could be a lot like the number one gateway drug, <laughs> <laughs> marijuana. <laughs> I mean, first you do one, one toke <laughs> and it makes you feel good. And then next thing you know, you have to inject three whole lines of marijuana to get the same high. <laughs> And you move on to the harder stuff. It could be very similar to
0: that. I'm going to be so upset if there's someone out there who still thinks that you're like a staunch, you know, anti-marijuana crusader. I'm going to be so upset. Moving on. I think I have one more. They're not going to make it this far in the show. Yeah, they're they're done. They've already, uh, they've already. They
1: they unsubscribed two episodes ago.
0: Yeah, and crushed us on the internet. And now the internet (laughs) algorithm overlords are going to just exile us to the most isolated corner of the internet i think that's how reviews work right i think so yeah okay last review or last uh study to talk about in this research roundup is by klatskin et al it says negative affect is associated with increased stress eating for women with high perceived life stress so um just to you know negative affect it's a personality variable That involves the experience of negative emotions and poor self-concept. And uh, negative affectivity could describe a a variety of negative emotions, including anger, contempt, disgust, guilt, fear, and nervousness. So um, what they found in this study, uh, again, this is one of those outcomes that's relatively unsurprising. It kind of passes that face validity test of like, yeah, that's pretty intuitive, Um, But what they found was in women with perceived life stress, negative affect was predictive of stress eating. And and they're thinking that might be because uh, there are greater drops in negative affect after stress eating for women who have high perceived life stress. So they stress eat basically as like a coping mechanism. And they say, yeah, I feel a little bit better now. The problem there is that higher perceived life stress uh, predicted greater emotional relief upon stress eating. So it might reinforce that idea, like a learned association in these people with high perceived life stress. Okay, when I get stressed or, or have negative affect, I'm going to go do some stress eating, that's going to make me feel better. And they kind of learn that feedback loop and are more likely to potentially repeat it. And so uh, the, the authors indicated that the results might help to explain uh, why uh, there is greater stress eating and greater obesity in women who tend to have higher perceived life stress. The idea that it reinforces this behavior of, uh, you know, I have perceived life stress when I have negative affect or negative emotions. I lean on stress eating. It gives me kind of a short term reward sensation. That's kind of a self-perpetuating loop that predisposes one to obesity.
1: Yeah, I've seen kind of that similar idea posited as a potential link between poverty and obesity, Mm -hmm. which I mean, that's plausible as hell.
0: Very much so. So um, like I said, w- once I start getting into more behavioral stuff, I try to speak less just to make sure I'm not being an idiot. But when, when we look at the collective uh, literature when it comes to things that affect weight loss variability, and this is an incomplete list for sure, but some of the things that might predispose one to either have very low friction during a weight loss attempt or, um, you know, very high friction and a lot of difficulty It could relate to your metabolic phenotype. Do you, you know, really abruptly adapt to low caloric intake as a means of preserving fat mass? Some people do, some people not quite as much. It could relate, you know, the the study that I I mentioned from a previous episode, episode, it could relate to your gut microbiome. There there seems to be some influence of that with certain types of diet interventions. It could relate to your subjective satiety response to eating, those satiety phenotypes that we talked about. It could relate to neurobiological factors related to reward sensations. So that study where people had this really big kind of pleasurable brain activity in response to palatable foods seemed to be predictive of weight gain. It could be related to perceived life stress. And the uh, propensity that one might have to resort to stress eating as a means of dealing with negative affect uh, in, within the context of, of life stressors could relate to sleep, which we've talked about, about you know several times before on, on the podcast. General principle here, it's pretty complicated. So whether you're trying to lose weight or whether you work with people who might be trying to lose weight, it's really important to keep that in mind. And I I think a lot of people, I think one of the unfortunate things about this like evidence based fitness thing that that seems to be really popular right now, generally on the whole, it's a good thing. But I think a lot of people have adopted a very oversimplified view of weight loss, which is you give everyone a pretty predictable uh, number of calories and proportion of different macronutrients, and it will work. And if it doesn't work, they're lying about their adherence. I think if we're going to take an evidence-based approach to weight loss or any, any change in body composition, we have to review all the evidence, including all these other factors that might predispose one to either have better or worse adherence, have a better or worse time while adhering, and then things that could actually affect the physiology of exactly how low or how high the calories need to be.
1: Yeah, I, I think, uh... I think a lot of people do get kind of reductive when it comes to this stuff. Uh, Have you seen the Bob Newhart Mad TV sketch, Stop It?
0: (laughs) I think I have. I think I have.
1: So it's a classic. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, uh, just Google Bob Newhart Stop It or search that on YouTube. It'll come up. Uh, This was a sketch from way back in the day. Where it's essentially uh, a young woman coming to a therapist with, you know, a lot of problems, a lot of things she's dealing with. And his advice for everything is, well, just stop it. Uh, And I feel like that's about as useful as just giving people advice to eat less, move more. Right. Because the thing is, like, yeah, like, no shit. That's what someone needs to do. But, like, that doesn't address why they may be struggling with it. Uh, it doesn't address, you know, potential strategies that they could try to implement to, you know, make eating less and moving more, uh, a simpler habit to adopt and stick with. So it's like, it's true, but thoroughly unhelpful.
0: Right. Yeah. And and that's the thing that I I try to reinforce. Like, I think a lot of people who would be helping someone with weight loss, probably, I'm just playing the numbers here, playing the averages. In aggregate, they're probably people with a pretty nice physique, mm-hmm. generally speaking. You know, if, if you're like a fitness professional who people come to for weight loss, you're probably kind of lean-ish. And the, the really important thing to keep it, or you've gotten very lean at some point, one would think, generally. It's really important if you're someone who has not struggled with weight loss, but you're trying to help clients who do, It's really important that you step outside of your own experiences and be evidence-based. The stuff is still evidence too. It's it's not just like a macro spreadsheet, but it is evidence. It's really important to step outside of your own personal experience and think, why would would this client be having a much harder time than I would? Some of these factors relate to adherence. Some of them relate to To true physiological differences. Uh, Some relate to how they're going to experience this weight loss attempt, how unpleasant or challenging it's going to be perceived on their end, and and what kind of roadblocks are going to be in their way. And as a practitioner, I'm not trying to, sometimes people talk about these different aspects that affect adherence, and they think you're trying to make excuses for people with poor adherence. That's really not what the conversation should be about. If you're a practitioner, the whole point is, What are our challenges and what are the strategies these are some of the challenges and these are things that are going to vary widely so when you've got those clients that are really struggling keep this evidence in mind and start to think about well these are some of the potential roadblocks we might be dealing with what are some strategies to help navigate these but please don't be the person who's been lean your entire life is always shredded and then convinces themselves people who aren't shredded just don't want it bad enough. You know, there, there are real differences between people that can describe uh, and explain this variability in weight loss responses.
1: I mean, yeah, that may also not be untrue. Like, the they just don't want it bad enough. Because the thing is, so I, I'm speaking as someone who has always, it's... always struggled with my weight. And like, one time in my life when I was dealing with a tremendous amount of just like self-loathing, I was like, I want to be lean. Uh, I wanted it really bad. And I lost like 60 pounds in four months. And like the thing is, I think virtually everyone, if you said like, hey, I took your family hostage and I'm going to kill them in three months unless unless you lose 30 pounds. I think virtually everyone could get it done. But then the question is like, is it reasonable to expect someone to want it that bad? And are you going to judge them if they don't? Mm -hmm. Because, like, you know, if you're... Let's say you're a professional bodybuilder, and you're one of, like, the five professional bodybuilders in the world who actually makes their income off of competition winnings, then, like, yeah, there's a very clear reason why someone would want it really bad. But, you know... Someone who has a busy life and like fitness is just kind of a hobby for them, and they want to lose some weight, but like you know, it's not a life or death situation. There's not a tremendous amount of money on the line if they are able to get lean or not. Uh, then the general strategy of well, you just gotta want it bad enough. It's like they're they're clearly struggling because like you know the the amount of. The amount to which it rationally matters to them uh, doesn't kind of comport with how much it would suck to achieve what they want to given the strategies they have so like the your job as a coach is to make it to where like the amount of willpower that they rationally have and the amount that they rationally want it can kind of match up better with the amount of effort they have to put into it via the strategies that you give them.
0: That's a very important clarification. Um, if weight loss is the goal, obviously you, you can willpower your way as far as you want to go. Um, if you just said, all right, it's chicken and spinach from here on out. We're going to go on seven, 800 calories a day. Carry that in perpetuity. You're going to get very lean and probably not be healthy. You're probably going to run into a lot of issues, but, but absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you could, if you wanted it bad enough, obviously you could make your life absolutely miserable and just go for it. You know, I mean, no one is immune to starvation, so you you could take as extreme approach as you wanted and it's the calories in and the calories out still work, but, but that's a very important clarification. What, What I'm indicating is, you know, you've got one client who runs into a lot of roadblocks, it's important to consider what might be the predisposing factors that are causing these roadblocks to come up. It's just going to make you a better practitioner for, for like you said, getting them where, you know, taking the amount of willpower and dedication they have toward that goal and maximizing how we apply strategies to get as much out of that as we can. And yeah, if you've got a client who this is absolutely the only priority in their life and they're willing to do anything, they're going to get lean, lean, it will work. But, but the real trick is when you've got that client who is struggling with a variety of different barriers and you're like, I just can't figure out what is making this so hard for them. That's where this evidence comes into play. You know, how do they, how do they respond to palatable foods? What can we do about that? Do we have to maybe consider the fact that maybe those palatable foods are not going to be part of your low calorie diet plan? Some people can get those treats in there and it's fine. Other people, it just causes them to overeat excessively. You know, the the cliche one is peanut butter. Some people, when they're dieting, there's just no peanut butter in the house. And that's just the way it goes, you know. Uh, But some people can just have a little bit and and still maintain a a low-calorie diet and it's fine. So it's a very good clarification. I don't want to discount how important it is to have the focus and the willpower to focus in on the goal and make it happen. Um, But as a practitioner, all this evidence here about these different predisposing factors it's just more tools in the toolbox that are going to help you get more clients to reach the goals they're they're interested in
1: yeah and it it's it's kind of the same type of type of thing like just the observation oh you don't want it bad enough while true may also not be useful correct because because, like just telling someone that isn't going to make them want it more
0: you know right definitely Okay, uh, that just about does it for today's episode. But as always, we need something to play us out. So Greg, I had the tremendous pleasure of being a guest at your Thanksgiving. I know what you're thinking, listener. Thanksgiving was two weeks ago. But Greg's fixated on it. He can't get over it. Clearly, it's his favorite holiday of the year. Um, So Greg, you made the turkey. It was absolutely phenomenal. Can you share some roasted turkey tips for our listeners?
1: Yeah. So the, the reason I'm doing this is, uh, I posted a little bit about making a good turkey on Facebook and it was really, really popular. So, uh, generally that's where, that's where recipe stuff on the podcast comes from. Like if I share something on Facebook and Instagram and it has a big response, it's like, okay, let's try to get this out to more people. So, uh, You know, if you're listening to this, there's a decent chance you're not going to make another turkey for, you know, another 50 weeks or so. Um, But maybe just bookmark this and come back to it uh, around this time next year.
0: Some people do Christmas turkeys.
1: They do. So this will be very useful if you do a Christmas turkey. Yeah. Or, you know, if your Thanksgiving turkey didn't go well and you want redemption for Christmas, you could make that a new tradition for you and your family. So, anyway, uh, here are just some tips to get a good turkey because turkey can be absolutely delicious, but most turkeys that are consumed out there for Thanksgiving uh, are just absolutely horrid. If you properly cook a turkey, it can be juicy and flavorful and so good. And if you overcook it or cook it poorly, which I think most people do, uh, it's gonna be dry and you're gonna to have to absolutely smother it in gravy for you to even be able to choke it down. And it's just an unpleasant experience. So if you wanna get the most out of your turkey, here's what you gotta do. So first things first, if you started cooking turkeys like 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and you learned from uh, the Food and Drug Administration or the USDA that the safe cooking temperature for poultry was 180 degrees, that's wrong uh that's what they said back in the day uh they have since revised it to 165 degrees if you cook it low and slow so so pasteurizing food is both a matter of time and temperature so essentially like the the temperature that they say this is safe is the temperature at which if the if the meat peaks above that temperature for an instant all of the bacteria are dead um if you hold it at a slightly lower temperature for a slightly longer period of time that will also accomplish pasteurization so realistically if you go low and slow cooking your bird you could probably eat it at like 155-160 um but 165 that is the number that is absolutely going to be safe that's what the fda has revised it to and that will still give you a juicy delicious bird Um, so in addition to the cooking temperature some things to keep in mind one i would strongly strongly recommend you brine your turkey so what that's going to do is it's going to help you get some salt into the meat just so it's a little bit more flavorful Um, and it is also going to help break down the proteins so as the proteins break down as you cook those proteins are going to hold on to a little more water and it's just going to make the meat softer and more tender in general. So as far as brining goes, you can either go with a wet brine or a dry brine. I personally tend to dry brine steaks and wet brine turkeys. Um, so a wet brine is essentially you make a saltwater solution and you submerge the, the piece of meat in that and just let it hang out at least overnight, but two days is probably better. Uh, dry brine is essentially you would like put the bird on a roasting rack and just cover it pretty heavily in salt and just let it rest, again, at least overnight. Um, that's initially going to draw some water out of the meat and then draw the then salted water back into the meat. I've heard from people that dry brining turkey works well. I only cook one turkey a year and I've always had great success with wet brining and so I'm not gonna like risk my yearly turkey dry brining because um, I know wet brining works well. If you go the wet brining route, I would recommend a two to 3% solution. So essentially for every liter of liter of water you use, you'd want to have 20 to 30 grams of salt uh, dissolved in that water. That's going to give you enough salt in the meat to accomplish what you want it to do without just making it overly, unpleasantly salty. Uh, So yeah, start by brining the meat, either wet or dry. I'd personally recommend wet because that's what I've had success with. Next thing you're gonna wanna do, and this one's gonna sound weird, but trust me, it's great. You wanna spatchcock your bird. Spatchcocking is a just kind of neat term for removing the spine. Uh, You're going to have a lot more success with that with a very sharp, ideally well-made pair of kitchen shears. you will a knife Uh, if you have a really really sharp knife you could probably spatchcock with a knife i wouldn't recommend it i'd recommend using kitchen shears Um, it's trivially easy to spatchcock a chicken with a turkey since the bones are thicker it does take a little more elbow grease but it's worth it so once you remove the spine you can kind of cut down the middle of the breast from the inside to get the turkey to lay flat and what that's going to do is, one, it's going to help the bird cook faster because it doesn't have the cavity inside uh, that, like, is kind of a heat sink. So it helps it cook faster. It also helps it cook a lot more evenly. So if you're roasting in an oven, you know, you don't have the top of the bird that's more exposed to the heating element and the bottom that is, like, kind of insulated to some degree. And it also just helps the meat cook evenly through. So one of the things that can happen when you're cooking a turkey is you could wind up with a bird that's simultaneously overcooked and undercooked. Like the most of the meat is kind of overcooked and then when you get like closer to the middle of the bird, like closer to the cavity, it's still partially raw. Uh, Spatchcocking helps reduce the risk of that. So the whole bird lays flat. It's a pretty uniform thickness. It's going to cook at uh, a more even desirable rate and like I said, cook a little bit faster as well. So those are the two biggest things I would recommend. If you brine your bird, you spatch three biggest things. If you brine it, you spatch cock it and you make sure that at the middle of the breast and middle of the thigh you're looking at realistically pull the bird at 160 and then carry over cooking will get it up to 165. or if you just want to be conservative and pull it at 165, that'll get you a pretty good turkey. Um, so those those are the three things that are going to make the biggest difference. Now, a couple other things you could do that will just kick it up another notch is, one, uh, after you pull the turkey out of the brine and spash cock it, um, what I'd recommend you do is pat the skin dry and then spray it down with cooking spray. You can also just like rub it down with olive oil if you want, um, but cooking spray is a little bit easier and ultimately adds less fat to the bird if that's something that matters to you. Um and then sprinkle a little salt on it. The salt will draw out a little bit of extra water and then putting the fat on the skin will help it crisp up nicely. Um, Crisp turkey skin is better than soggy turkey skin. Something else that will help with crispy skin is after the bird gets done roasting, once it hits the temperature you want, just very, very quickly crank the temperature in the oven up as high as it'll go. Ideally, put it on broil and just put the turkey in there for maybe three minutes or so. That's gonna crisp the skin up really, really nicely at the end of the cooking process again without a- adding a bunch of like internal heat to the muscles. Um, so that's something I would recommend. And then finally, th- and this is this is just personal preference, but I'd strongly recommend it. If you have a smoker, if you smoke if you smoke a turkey, it's gonna be so good. I mean smoking most meats makes them better. Uh, turkey itself, is on the blander end of birds. Um, So I don't think turkey meat is just inherently quite as bland as chicken, but it is more bland than most other birds. Uh, Getting some salt in the meat from brining will help with that, but getting a nice layer of smoke on the outside is its choice. Uh, So I would strongly recommend smoking your bird if you do have access to a smoker. As far as cooking temp goes, I have had the most success generally cooking with a pretty low temperature. And then again, at the end, just cranking it up to to crisp up the skin. So somewhere between 275 and 325 degrees Fahrenheit. um, That is what I've had the most success with. But just in general, like the the three biggest things that I would, I'd say the two biggest things, cooking temp, get it up to 165, not 180. uh, And again, that's Fahrenheit, not Celsius and make sure you brine it either wet or dry. Those are the two tips that will give you the biggest return on investment. The next biggest tip that'll give you the next highest return on investment is to make sure you spatchcock the bird. Um, It's not gonna be quite as important as brining or appropriate cooking temperature, but it does make the whole process a lot easier and make sure things cook evenly so you don't wind up with say overcooked breast and undercooked thighs. so spatchcocking is really clutch, and then just the t- the recommendations of smoking and using the cooking spray on the skin and whatnot. That that I think are is kind of details that will help put a little more polish on the bird. But really, brine, spatchcock, hundred sixty five degrees. That's uh that's where the money is.
0: And I can confirm it was very very good. So in about fifty weeks, be sure to check back into this episode or. If you want to give it a shot for uh, a holiday turkey this year, go for it. Um, and there's probably some transferable skills here when it comes to cooking any kind of poultry, I would imagine.
1: Oh yeah, uh, spatchcocked roasted chicken, tremendous. Um, yeah, if, if you if you like chicken and you don't mind spending a little bit more time prepping it, I think we've talked about this on the show before, actually. Uh, Brine the chicken, spatchcock it you know cook it nice and slow uh it's absolutely delicious and even if you're trying to go macro friendly and you pick the skin off the underlying meat is still going to be very delicious and flavorful
0: yeah and so that's an alternative um if you don't want to do i usually go with like a crock pot turkey for thanksgiving but this is a different a different direction if you want to make sure your thanksgiving turkey is a little bit more Like, like a
1: crock pot boneless skinless turkey breast right
0: yeah, several of them, and I yeah. put in some chicken broth, and I of usually course. about eight hours on the low setting would do it.
1: Oh, uh, just one tiny little thing to add: another further benefit of spatchcocking your turkey is you can make sure you have uh, fresh turkey gravy. So one of the drawbacks of of Thanksgiving in general is if you want to have fresh gravy to go with everything, um, it's tough unless you made turkey stock from your turkey last year that you saved in the freezer, because, like, you know, you make stock from from the carcass of an animal that has been picked, and you don't get that from the turkey you roast for Thanksgiving until you have cooked it already. Uh, and you're probably not going to start the turkey-making process or the the um, gravy-making process until you've already completely cooked and picked your turkey. So, um a benefit of spatchcocking is then you have the neck that came with the turkey and then also the spine which has a lot of tendons and ligaments attached to it a lot of collagen so while your cookie is tur or while your turkey is cooking you can cut that spine up put it in a stock pot and make fresh turkey stock while your turkey is roasting so you can have uh, fresh turkey stock to make gravy with there on the day which is pretty cool
0: very cool indeed That just about does it for this week's episode, but we still have a fantastic interview. We had James Krieger on, and we talked to James a little bit about the insulin hypothesis, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, various types of body composition measurement, and then we just kind of had a general conversation about research and statistics in exercise science. So James is a good friend of both of ours. It's a really terrific interview. Make sure you uh, hang on and listen to that on the other end of the music. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. Today, Greg and I are joined by the great James Krieger. James, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for coming on. Now, I would imagine that a huge portion of our audience knows who you are, uh, but there might be some who are not familiar with you or your work. So uh, the first question is, who is James Krieger and
2: why? (laughs) Well, I'll answer the why first. I guess. I guess uh, you know, if you haven't had the birds and bees discussion, that's that, that's how I came about. But uh, um, no, I've been in the fitness industry for she's over twenty years now. Um, I I was around in the early days of the internet uh, back. Um, um, you know, maybe some of your older listeners who have been around a while. Probably remember some of the old message boards like weights and stuff. I mean, this is back in the early to mid '90s. Um, I used to lurk around those boards and stuff, and um, so I've been in the industry ever, you know, since those times. But um, but yeah, I've uh, I kind of wear a lot of hats. I've published a number of studies or, or been a co-author on a number of studies um, in the industry, you know, with uh, mainly Brad Schoenfeld, but some other people too. Um, you know, mainly resistance training studies, meta-analyses, you know, things like that. Um, um, got my own, uh, I used to be a research director for a, a weight management program for, for Microsoft employees. We had uh, really good success rates, uh, average weight loss of something like 40 pounds in three months. And, um, that program is still going, you know, even though I'm not a part of it anymore, it's still growing really strong. Um, it's based here in the Seattle area cause that's where Microsoft is. But, uh, and um, have my own website, Weightology, and um, have things like a research review. I had some online coaching going around. I give talks and stuff. Uh, um, really not a whole lot different from what you guys are doing, you know, because you guys got mass and, and you got your, you know, Stronger by Science and everything. So, uh, No, that's a good point.
0: Um, it, it would seem a bit counterintuitive that we would bring a direct competitor on the show unless the <laughs> intention was... Largely to make them look bad and and kind of harpoon their business, wouldn't you think?
2: <laughs> well, you you still have subtle ways to do that, or perhaps I have subtle ways that I could do it to you guys, you know. So you know.
0: Yeah, but you don't edit the audio, so. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so James, I, I think that's a, a nice comprehensive introduction. I've I've seen you speak uh, in in public, and you're a really fantastic speaker. There are a few topics we really want to chat with you about today. they are things you've talked about publicly before. Um, so the first one that I want to get into, uh, some of the first talks I think I ever saw you give, or first things I saw you post about publicly on the internet, uh, related to the insulin related hypothesis of obesity. Um, and so I was hoping you could give us a, first of all, before we get into questions about it. What exactly is this insulin hypothesis uh, for obesity?
1: And, and do you think you could potentially recap your absolutely legendary debate with dangerously hardcore Kiefer on this subject?
2: Oh yes, yes, I I, I, w- I will totally recap my debate with that. Uh, um, I mean, it was a really intense debate, you know, that I had with with G- Kiefer. So, for those of you who don't know, this is uh, 2015 and. And, um, uh, I was invited to speak at the Epic fitness summit in the UK and I was, uh, required to debate John Kiefer of, uh, I don't know, he had some carb backloading thing. I don't know. Um, and I mean, I'll just have to say, I, I did such a good job in that debate that, uh, he didn't even show up before we even started, I and mean, that's how good of a job I did. So, <laughs> um, so there's always a lot of Kiefer jokes. That uh, yeah, he he, it, but that but honest to God, he did not even show up for the debate. He he, his claim was that he missed his flight, or, or and all the other fights were booked or something like that. So I was given you know, it was supposed to be like a two hour debate or hour and a half debate. And I was given a full two hours just to talk on insulin myself. And that, that was actually that talk that kind of launched my speaking career really. Um, uh, cause it went, it would just, it went really well. So, um, but yeah, in that talk, I basically talked about the insulin hypothesis, which is just to kind of put it in a nutshell. It was kind of made popular by Gary Taubes. Um, but really it's been around for a while, even in the days of Adkins and stuff. But, um, Gary Taubes is kind of the big guy, I think, to really push it with his good carbs or good calories, bad calories book. And uh, um, so the idea is, you know, insulin is a hormone that regulates blood sugar, but it also regulates fat metabolism. And the idea is, well, when insulin levels are high, you can't lose fat because insulin shuts down fat burning and things like that. And, well, carbs are kind of the biggest thing that supposedly help stimulate insulin release. So if you eat a high-carb diet, you will have a much harder time losing body fat because your insulin levels are high. That, that's that's basically the whole hypothesis in a nutshell. There's some other nuances to it, but that's that's kind of what the, the hypothesis is supposed to be.
0: Yeah, with that hypothesis, um, what do you think are the most notable major shortcomings of that hypothesis? So when someone comes up to you and says, I want to really micromanage my insulin levels, as a means of improving my body composition, what what do you tell somebody who who has that stance?
2: Um, yeah, there's so many shortcomings. I think probably some of the biggest ones are. I, I would just say the biggest one is: look, uh, we have plenty of plenty of studies now where. Uh, I mean, basically, the idea is this: I mean, if it is all about insulin, then I should be able to take two groups, um, put one group of people on a low carb diet, another group on a high carb diet. And the group on the low carb diet should lose more fat, even if I keep calories the same. I mean, that's basically what should happen if the insulin hypothesis is true. There've been a number of studies that have done that, and none of them show any difference in fat loss. So that right there tells you there's something wrong with the insulin hypothesis. Um, and I can go into all kinds of other problems with it. Um, you know, people focus on carbs, but what people don't understand is that protein also stimulates insulin release. And in fact, some types of protein, particularly dairy protein or whey protein, actually can stimulate more insulin release than white bread can, uh, depending on how much you're having. So, yeah, I mean, a lot
0: of a lot of people say that as if it's like a technicality, like, well, there are some, you know, there, there can be some insulin response to protein. It's like, no, like there, there's like a robust insulin response yes. to a lot of pro- like it's big. People act like it's some yeah. kind of little
1: uh, fun fact especially if it's animal protein, like branched chain amino acids are essentially as insulinogenic as sugar is.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Like leucine, uh, because I've had some people argue with me that, well, the reason protein stimulates insulin is because it's converted to glucose first and then it's the glucose stimulating insulin. I'm like, no. I mean, there's there's plenty of research showing leucine, you know, which is a branched chain amino acid, will directly stimulate the pancreas to produce insulin. I mean, so, so protein directly stimulates insulin release. There's no, it's not due to it being converted to glucose or anything like that. It, it directly stimulates uh, insulin secretion. And, and like I said, uh, you know, like you said, Eric, it's actually a very robust response. Um, there's one pretty good study out there where they compared uh, dairy protein to white bread and the dairy protein actually created a more robust insulin response than white bread did you know so um so there's just there's just so many problems with the insulin hypothesis it's just um i mean in my talk i went through i don't know at least probably 15 different problems with the insulin hypothesis i don't remember the exact number but um it's just it just falls apart upon closer inspection so
1: yeah for for anyone listening uh, if you just Google James Krieger insulin or Weightology insulin, he has like a 47 part series that's free to read. <laughs> that's absolutely fantastic. Uh, so James, one of the, I guess like rebuttals that people will will have to this general uh, general line of thinking, uh, you know, protein does stimulate a robust insulin response, but unlike you know, white bread or sugar or really any carbohydrate source, it also stimulates a glucagon response. That's something that you'll often see people bring up. Is that actually like a complicating slash mitigating factor? Or is it just kind of like a red herring or diversion? Like does that actually change the picture one would expect to see insofar as like how insulin would relate to fat loss?
2: Yeah, no, it doesn't really change the picture because what people don't understand, I mean, I think people automatically think that glucagon um, completely opposes insulin in every single way. Um, So they're assuming that glucagon is going to prevent insulins uh, or basically block insulins effects on fat burning and stuff. And um, there's human studies showing that that's not true. Um, Glucagon does oppose insulin in terms of glucose regulation, but in terms of fat metabolism it it doesn't uh and so that that argument kind of falls apart and and really it makes sense why the body would would uh release glucagon in response to protein intake and really it's just to keep blood sugar up because remember we said that protein stimulates insulin release if i just eat pure protein and i get this insulin response um my blood sugar will drop. I mean, I mean, if I don't have any glucagon response, my blood sugar res- will drop. So the reason your body releases glucagon in addition to the insulin is to stimulate your liver to produce some more glucose to maintain your blood sugar levels um, in the face of that elevated insulin. So that's why you get a gluca- glucagon response with protein, but it has nothing to do, it doesn't oppose uh, the effects on fat metabolism. And in fact, I think there's three human studies that looked at the effects of glucagon on lipolysis, which is the breakdown of fat um, in humans, and all three of them found that elevations of glucagon didn't have any impact on that. So, so it's really it is kind of just a red herring. It doesn't um, it, the increase in, in glucagon doesn't doesn't really mitigate the effect of insulin in terms of actual body fat or fat metabolism.
0: Yeah, I mean when I think of the insulin uh, hypothesis, it really stands out to me as one of those instances where. Uh, without question, understanding mechanisms is critically important. But sometimes we find ourselves um, getting extremely caught up in theory and mechanism, and just ignoring what's very apparently observable right before our eyes. So it's it's this thing where you see a lot of people arguing all these different biochemical pathways and, and hormone regulation loops. And it's like, yeah, but but we put people on two different diets, and they did the same thing.
2: Yeah. yeah, And actually that gets back, you know, I, I was recently on, on with, um, Eric Helms and Omar, uh, and, uh, we, we don't talk podcast. about them. We don't talk about them. No. <laughs> okay. So the people who shall not be named brought up a really good point. Um, you know, a lot of trainers, I think make the mistake of, you know, it's one thing to say, for example, Hey, low carb diets work. They help people lose weight. That's, that's a factual statement. They do. They are, they work. Um, They can be very beneficial um, for for some people. But as soon as you start trying to claim, oh, but the reason the low-carb diets work is because of insulin, when you start uh, throwing out these mechanisms that really don't have any good, don't have any solid data behind them, that's where you run into problems. Um, Because then it leads you down all these other weird pathways. Because if you start assuming the insulin hypothesis is correct, and then you have it creates all these crazy diets like no carb diets and stuff like that but because people are trying to they're like oh i got to get my insulin as low as possible so if low carb is good that means no carb is even better you know and it just creates all these crazy situations that um or what happens is someone's not losing weight and they think oh i just i just got to drop my carbs more um even though they're dousing all their food in oil, and they're eating actually more calories than they're expending. They think, oh, I just got to get my insulin lower. Uh, that's the problem when you start putting incorrect mechanisms as to why a certain diet works. So,
1: so James, I think to this point, you've, you've probably mostly been preaching to the choir. Like, I think the vast majority of our audience would be totally on board with everything you've said to this point. But... Just based on feedback we've gotten to previous episodes, I do know that there are some keto advocates and, and low-carb folks who do listen to the podcast. So just to kind of, I guess, kind of extend an olive branch, it seems that people who are sold on that way of eating do get really hung up on the insulin mechanisms, how insulin can you know just totally shut down lipolysis and theoretically fat burning so you know maybe if they're confronted with human trials they'll say oh if it's outpatient um, people probably just weren't adhering or if it's inpatient the trial was just too short to really conclude anything uh, because they they do really really like that mechanism so to kind of keep things in the realm of mechanism what are the mechanisms by which you know eating more carbs and having maybe slightly higher insulin or, you know, more insulin spikes throughout the day. What are the mechanisms by which that doesn't lead to inferior fat loss? Just, you know, just so we have that mechanism talk for the people who are really hung up on that particular
2: mechanism. I think the first thing I want to say is that um, what we need to understand is insulin doesn't operate in a vacuum, So it's not like only insulin is changing when you're changing your macros and everything like that. There's other hormones that are changing. There's, um, other factors there. There's even, there's even, um, things that are changing in terms of the effects of certain foods on like the brain and food reward and, and appetite regulation and things like that. There there's, I, I tried I made a point in a blog post years ago, um, uh, that appetite control and how much you eat and everything is really complicated. It's actually, there's, I mean, it's, it's, it's the reason why, let, let me put it this way. If it was really just about insulin, then the, we, it, the, the obesity problem would be easy to solve because all we would need to do is develop a drug, which there are drugs that do this, that will just basically block the effects of insulin and boom, you lose weight. Um, but, the the drugs that do exist that do that don't work they don't really work um and uh so obviously it's not as simple as you know just just changing insulin i mean there's obviously other things going on um yes insulin is a regulator of fat metabolism but also there's also other hormones that are regulators of fat metabolism like leptin for example and in fact i would argue leptin is a more important regulator than insulin is but um and then there's just there's nerve signals and like I, I could go on and on and on um and I just I guess I want people to appreciate just the complexity with which how your body regulates body fat levels um and uh, insulin just doesn't operate on its own and so what can happen is yeah you can still lose body fat on a higher carb diet because yeah you know let's say your insulin levels are higher um but we have to consider Um, it's not like those insulin levels stay elevated all day long. I mean, unless you're continuously eating 24 hours a day, um, you know, you have fasting, everybody has fasting periods between meals and everyone, unless you have just like an IV going into you when you go to bed, um, everyone has a fasting period at night when they go to sleep. Um, so so what matters is what's the net effect over, you know, 24 hours. Not 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 what's happening at, you know in response to a single meal. Um what ha- what happens in response to a single meal doesn't really matter. Um it's it's what's the overall net effect. And and even if you have somewhat higher insulin levels of say um during, you know, in the time after a meal, you still have this big long fasting period you know, at night and between meals where insulin levels come back down where, you know, the effect on lipolysis isn't going to be there. So, um, and then, like I said, with all the other hormones going on and all the other factors, the net effect is, you know, if energy intake is the same and assuming protein intake is the same, it doesn't matter whether it's high carb or high fat, you're going to lose the same amount of body fat over a 24 hour period. It's just, you know, Um, uh, you know, and and what people also remember is on a high carb diet, you know, if I'm on a high carb diet, but I'm in an energy deficit, so I'm in a, you know, I'm obviously eating less calories than I'm expending. Um, what happens is when I eat carbs, those carbs, because I'm in an energy deficit, those carbs will either be burned for energy or they'll get just stored as muscle glycogen, you know, um, something like that. They're not going to suddenly... Uh, you know, they're not going to suddenly shut down my ability to get rid of body fat, you know. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, Greg, or, or, or answers, I guess, the question uh, maybe gives your, you know, your your pro keto listeners a, a, a better perspective on that, if that's what you're looking for. But uh, I, I guess that's just what kind of comes to my mind. It, so It,
1: it I, answers it well enough for me. And if it doesn't, an- and if it doesn't answer it well enough for them, I'm sure the YouTube comments will let me know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, I, mean, I mean, the other thing I just want to say on that is um, what I want to reiterate there is I'm not saying that low carb is, doesn't work. I, I think what some people say is, you know, when you start arguing against the insulin hypothesis or something like that, I think some people take that as me, as me or someone else saying, oh, so you're saying that low carb doesn't work, that it can't help me lose body fat. And I'm like, I'm not saying that at all. It, the data is very clear that low carb can be a very effective tool for a lot of people um it's just it's just a different it's just the insulin is not the mechanism that's all i mean that's really all I'm saying. i 'm saying i've
0: found myself arguing basically the same point and it 's that you know i'm not saying that low carb diets are bad i 'm just saying that insulin isn't what makes them uh, a useful strategy and low carb diets are not across the board superior compared to a low-fat diet. you know, And and that shouldn't be perceived as a controversial statement because there's, I don't know, decades and decades and decades of evidence in support of that.
2: Oh, well, you just think of all the... I mean, I think of all the 1980s bodybuilders who were getting shredded on super high-carb diets. And in fact, somebody made a post, I don't know, maybe it was even you, Greg. I, I don't know. Someone had made a post that Real super high carb diets are still kind of the norm, at least in the UK, for a lot of bodybuilders in contest prep. You know, it's only seems like only in North America is where kind of the lower carb way of trying to get shredded for contest <clears throat> kind of became the way to do things. But uh, there's still plenty of bodybuilders out there using really high carb diets, and they're getting super super shredded lean for contest. You know, obviously it's not; it, it doesn't seem to be hurting them.
1: Well, I mean, all of those people are clearly blasting grams and doing all of the DNP they can get their hands on for for the glory they attain from amateur natural bodybuilding. So I I feel like that somewhat negates that point, but I I, I get where you're coming from at least.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. James, you're a sweet kid, but you're naive. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so James, you mentioned when you were talking about insulin, um, you know that that body fat regulation is complex and it's multifaceted, and you also touched on the idea of energy balance being key. And that's actually a great transition to the next topic I wanted to talk to you about. So, I've seen you uh, write and speak publicly about non-exercise activity thermogenesis. I guess my first question is, what got you so interested in teaching people about NEAT?
2: Yeah, that's actually a great question. So it, it's kind of interesting the way it came about. So it was actually when I was when I was the research director for Twenty Twenty Lifestyles, that, that that Microsoft weight management program I told you about earlier. Um, basically, one of the main facets of my job was to do literature reviews for the doctors and dietitians on staff, and I would do these literature reviews like twice a month. And a lot of times the CEO who was a physician, he would have questions for me. He'd be like, oh, I'd like you to look into this or I'd like you to look into that or whatever. Um, and <clears throat> um, one of the things that, that came up, because, um, you know, they, they would do grand rounds with the clients every Wednesday. And uh, uh, so all the clients, you know, basically all the, the dietitians and the doctors would get together. And basically, go over every client in the program in, in like basically an all day meeting. Um, and one of the things that often came up was, you know, um, uh, you know, you'd get these people claiming they weren't weren't eating a whole lot, and then but they they weren't losing weight. Um, and so the CEO wanted me to kind of look into that and stuff. And so so I started to delve into the literature, and that's where I you know basically got into all the literature on underreporting. But at the same time, that's where I actually started to come across some of the literature on NEAT. And, and, and actually, what it, what it was, um, actually, what also seemed like this was a lot of times um, if they had a client who wasn't losing weight, but the client was swearing they were being diet, you know, adherent to their diet, a lot of times they do a resting metabolic rate test on them. And these clients would come out with, you know, normal resting metabolic rates. So, so obviously, it wasn't an issue with metabolism. <clears throat> so... Um, so I kind of just took a dive into the literature um, and that's where I kind of came across uh, some of James Levine's work on NEAT or non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Um, and then I started to look into the data of how NEAT can go down with weight loss um, and also how NEAT can be an explan- uh, explanatory variable for, um, for the differences in tendencies uh, or people's tendencies to gain weight and, um, and so that's kind of where I started to really learn about Neat, and and actually my first lecture that I ever did on Neat um, was to those doctors and dietitians, and really I think um, Eric, the, the the lecture you saw is really just a, a an updated version of that original lecture I did, you know, all the way. I mean, this was back I don't know two thousand seven two thousand eight. So um, so I've been yeah talking about Neat for for quite a long time now.
0: So I would imagine for people who aren't. Uh... Who, who don't already know a lot about NEAT, it's probably kind of a hard sell to try to convince people that this non-exercise activity actually makes a meaningful impact in terms of their overall daily energy expenditure. Can you give the listeners an idea of, of kind of the relative impact or how much NEAT can vary uh, between people?
2: Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, in my talks, I'll usually actually put the number, I'll put numbers up on the, on the screen. So, so a perfect example is um, there's data comparing um, people who sit um, and don't really move versus people who sit and fidget. And the difference in energy expenditure per hour for people who kind of tend to fidget and, you know, while they're sitting down, I think it was around a 30 calorie per hour difference. You might think, oh, well, 30 calories is not not very much, but imagine someone at an eight-hour per day desk job, you know, over eight hours, that person who fidgets a lot is gonna expend an extra 240 calories, which is actually as much, if not more, than some people expend in an exercise session. So um and that's just that's just like fidgeting and stuff. Um um, the difference is even greater uh, versus uh, from standing still to standing and fidgeting. It, it, it's an even bigger difference. Um, and so I use that to illustrate, okay, these numbers add up over the day. Um, and then when you start um, looking at, you know, f- what I'd call free living and energy expenditure, because a lot of these energy expenditure studies are done in people in a lab. So they're kind of, kind of in a constrained environment. But when you, then you have people out in the, in the world, in their free living environment, these differences tend to get even bigger. Um, so, um, so yeah, so that that's what I do to kind of illustrate um, the magnitude of the differences you can see. And in fact, a really cool study by um, um, uh, Eric Ravison done in the ni- early 1980s um, they did a study where they had they had people confined to a small room. So it's, it's basically a small room that would measure energy expenditure, and you couldn't really move around much in the room. It's you know it, it, I don't know the exact size of the room, but but it's like it was like the size of a very small office. And they um, wanted to they'd have people sit in this room and just do their normal daily activities of daily living in this room or, or whatever. Um, they weren't doing any exercise. And even, and there, there was a little couch in there and they could watch TV and everything. Um, and even when you confine people to the, a small room, the energy expenditure difference you could see between different people was was pretty large. In fact, I think it, it went up to something like between the, the um, uh, I think it went up to something like a 700 calorie or so or six, six 700 calorie per day difference between people, which is, I mean, that's, that's a large difference. Um, and again, that's people confined to a small room. So you get people out in a free living environment, then those differences get even bigger. So, um, I mean, I mean, we're talking, you know, you know, up to a thousand calories a day or more in terms of the impact NEAT can have in terms on your, on your daily energy expenditure. It's, it's actually, a, a, it's fairly substantial.
0: Yeah, and I mean that that doesn't even account for jobs that are particularly active. You know, yeah, that that's just putting a couple people in a room. But then when you you factor in the fact that somebody throughout the day is essentially required to do a high level at, of activity, uh, you you could start to see discrepancies between people get even larger. But one of the things about neat that I find to be so interesting is the differences that we can see within people. So. You mentioned uh previously that we we often see that neat goes down during weight loss so i was wondering if you could tell us uh two questions i hear a lot why does neat go down when we lose weight and a slightly harder question how long does that persist
2: yeah so that that's actually really good good question there so um i think what 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 i want to um iterate first is that um, energy expenditure is at least partly biologically regulated. So your body actually tries to regulate its energy expenditure, not just through adjustments in metabolism and things like that, but also in adjustments in how much you move, um, and, and how much you spontaneously move, you know, cause, cause we all have spontaneous movement. Um, and what happens is when you try to lose weight, you know, our bodies don't like to lose weight. They they don't like to be in an energy deficit, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, it's bad to lose weight because, you know, our ancestors didn't know when they were going to get their next meal. So you want to, you don't want to be losing weight. You want to hold on to your body fat as much as you can. So, so when your body senses that it's losing weight and it's in an energy deficit, it tries to conserve calories. And one of the ways it does that is by basically subconsciously impacting your movement so you may fidget less you just may spontaneously move around less and you and you won't even really be aware of it Um, um, and it's just one of the body's mechanisms to try to defend itself against weight loss Um, and there i mean there's it's um there's a number of studies that show that you know neat definitely goes down um with weight loss so the second part of your question what, what was that again
0: the second part of the question, the one that everybody wants to know is, how long does that persist? You know, is there a time where after weight loss, you basically revert back to normal? Or or do you just assume this this new reduced level of NEAT, uh, essentially, in perpetuity?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I would say researchers don't really know um, if it comes back or not. I do know there's data, um, showing that even after a year of people maintaining weight loss, um, their neat levels were still down, uh, even after one year. So it does seem to persist. Uh, now, again, these were, uh, I think, um, overweight and obese people. So, you know, it might be different with lean people. I don't know, but, um, it, it does seem to persist for, for quite a long period of time. Um, uh, Uh, and, and it may be one of the explanatory variables as to why people have such a hard time keeping weight off, you know, you know, after they've lost it, because most people have successfully lost weight at some point in their life, at least people who have been looking to lose weight. Um, but most people have struggled to keep it off. And that, that, that's probably one of the mechanisms, uh, as to why people have a harder, hard time keeping their weight off
1: is that like still depressed in absolute terms or is it still depressed in relative terms as well?
2: It's still depressed in relative terms. Yeah. The the, the paper in particular that I'm thinking of is um, Rosenbaum. I think they published a paper in 2008 um, uh, and Leibel, uh, Rudolph, uh, Rudy Leibel, um, big, big, well-known metabolism researcher. They published a paper in 2008, the very paper I was talking about where, yeah, they had people. Um, they they had people lose ten percent of their body weight, and then they had people sustain that weight loss for either eight weeks, or I think it was eight weeks, or for up to a year. Um, and then they looked at the relative energy expenditure, and they found that the people who kept the weight off for even a year, their relative energy expenditure was still below where you would predict that it should be.
0: Very interesting and and i'm i'm pretty sure correct me if i'm wrong but when when they look at the uh there, there's a big registry for people who have lost weight and, and essentially kept it off and activity level in general seems to pre, seems to be a pretty
2: key predictor of successful weight maintenance is that correct yeah that's actually very um there's actually a number of studies showing that both both observational data like you just mentioned eric that's the the national weight control registry um Uh, data from that suggests, you know, the people who, uh, well, for the listeners, the National Weight Control Registry is basically a national database of people who have lost at least 30 pounds and kept it off for at least a year. Um, And so, people that sign up for this database, um, it it gives researchers a way to kind of look at the characteristics of people who are successful. Um, And one of the characteristics is very high physical activity levels Um, and that's also been shown in controlled trials. So I, 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 there's one that comes to mind. I don't remember the authors, but, um, they had people lose a bunch of weight. Um, and then they assigned them to two groups. One group did like a thousand calories per week in, in terms of physical activity, energy expenditure. The other group did, uh, 2,500 calories per week. Um, and the group that did a thousand calories per week gained most of their weight back, the group that did 2500 calories per week uh gained very little back um so so the data is very very quite uh powerful to suggest that you know if you're someone who wants to lose weight and let's say you have lost weight keeping high physical activity levels is pretty critical to keeping it off over the long term and you you recently
0: applied a, a fairly creative approach to non-exercise energy expenditure with one of your clients uh, which involved the use of the use of a weighted vest. Do you mind giving us a basically a brief uh, explanation of what the approach was and how well it worked?
2: Yeah, so um, I had a client, um, uh, Eric Lee Salazar, who was uh, shooting to try to get his IFBB Pro card. Um, uh, so he's a, a you know, bodybuilding competitor and. Um, We did an experiment where um, as he lost weight, we had him wear a weighted vest um, to basically replace the weight that he lost. So um, I think he started at like, I think his, his initial body weight was like 164 pounds, I think. And So, as he lost weight, he added like a, I think the first weight of this was like eight pounds or something like that. So, so to keep his external body weight at around 164, and in fact, he actually pushed it even a little bit higher to where his external weight, his total external weight was something like, I don't know, (coughs) um, excuse me. um, It was like uh, maybe in the one around 180 or something like that, but the idea behind that was... Um because as you lose weight, you have just you have less body weight to carry around, so you expend less energy just in that sense. Um, so the idea there was well, one of the things to help maintain his neat levels was to basically make his body think that that it hadn't lost any weight and so so he was carrying around the same body weight that he started with. Um, even though he had lost a bunch of body fat and it actually was a really successful experiment. He actually did get his pro card, but what was really surprising about it was not only how well it worked for him, but also, um, you know, he had, uh, commented that it is, it, it was his easiest contest prep he had ever done. Um, it just made the whole process much easier. He, he didn't have to do tons of cardio, um, <clears throat> he didn't uh it actually even had an impact on his appetite his, his appetite um didn't go up nearly as much as as it typically would in a, that type of situation um so yeah it was a really interesting experiment and it was actually quite successful and yeah i, I i'd say one of the mechanisms is is it helped to maintain his neat levels because because he was he wasn't um he had more uh he wasn't carrying less body mass around so um now i will say I think it, that can work really well for competitors who are just trying to lose weight temporarily. I don't think it would work very well for general population who are trying to keep the weight off long term because you would have to to maintain the benefits. You'd have to wear the weighted apparel indefinitely, and most people aren't going to want to do that. So,
1: wasn't there a mouse study maybe two years ago that took a similar approach, but they just like implanted metal weights in the in the mice's, mouse's, mice, whatever. Uh, in their abdominal cavity,
2: yeah, yeah, I actually did. Uh, I wrote an article for my research review on that, where I, I reviewed. Yeah, it was really interesting uh, data where they, um, yeah, they took these these rodents and they implanted weights in their abdomen, um, and the rodents just lost spontaneously lost body fat, and um, and what the researchers determined it it actually didn't have anything to do with the energy expenditure but it seemed to actually have an effect on appetite regulation. So as soon as they implanted these weights into the abdomen um, and made the rodents uh, heavier, the rodents started to eat less um, so that they lost body fat. So then they they returned to whatever their normal weight was supposed to be, um, you know, with with obviously the addition of that, that weight. Um, And so the researchers kind of speculated um, and there really needs to be more data on this, but I, I do think there's some merit to this because, just based on, you know, my client's feedback, the way he got, there seems to be another mechanism for regulation of body weight that's in the bone. So your bones sense loading. Um, and, um, um, and what the researchers did, they did a bunch of experiments to kind of, you know, tease out the mechanism. And it, and it appeared that the bone, the bone cells can sense loading and actually provide feedback regulation to the brain in terms of appetite. So, so the so the bones of these rodents sense the increased weight, then that fed back on the brains of the rodents say, okay, we're too heavy here. You need to eat less, and so these rodents lost body fat because of it, um, because the bones were basically telling the brain that that they were too heavy. So, um, so yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing. I think there 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 needs to be more work on it. I would love to see some human. Uh, stuff on it. It's all just rodent data at this point, but, um, but yeah, they, they called it a gravitostat, you know, kind of like a thermostat, you know, a thermostat regulates temperature and they, 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 there seems to be a gravity sensing mechanism in your body that um, senses load and senses how much body weight you're carrying that may help, or that may actually um, act in terms of body weight regulation. So it's, it's really interesting stuff.
0: That's fascinating. I, I, I hope that they continue that line of research because it, it'd be really intriguing because um, obviously there are a lot of different ways to load the skeleton. It'd be interesting to see how different loading parameters affect that response in terms of, uh, you know, the duration of loading or the, the relative intensity of loading. I, I think there could be some some really fascinating implications for figuring out that mechanism uh, with a greater de- degree of detail, um, and by the way, one detail we we haven't mentioned: obviously, Eric during his prep had the weighted vest, but he also maintained a a daily step count goal. Is that correct?
2: Yes, he he did ten thousand steps a day, and he maintained that throughout
0: his whole prep. So, the idea of wearing additional weights in perpetuity is not a very palatable option for the general uh, general population, but. Uh, do you think that with a combination of step count goals and physical activity goals, that that those are kind of the key strategies that the general population can use when they're
2: attempting to hopefully maintain their weight loss once it's been achieved? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I think, you know, step count goals are actually great um, because, you know, again, when I talk about NEAT, um, for most people, the biggest component of NEAT, daily need is just walking. So, so the most efficient way to get your neat levels up is just to walk around more throughout your day. And so I think step counts are just a great, great way for people to do that. And it's very low intensity. It doesn't wear you out. It does, it's not exhausting, you know, anything like that. You just accumulate it through the day. And, and it, has a, it has a really um, powerful effect on, on, on body weight management. Um, in fact, I've had coaching clients who were struggling – um, and then I would just make one change, like getting their step counts way up and all of a sudden they would start to have some success. So, so I, I think it's a really, really great tool. And I think it tends to get underrated sometimes. I, I, um, I think people focus too much on, on the exercise itself, like doing, you know, whatever they're doing in the gym or whatever cardio they're doing. Um, and I don't think enough attention gets paid to what's your cumulative physical activity through the whole day. Cause that's really what... I mean, from a fat loss perspective and I'm, I'm ignoring weight training as far as, you know, the ability of weight training to preserve muscle and everything like that. So ignoring, putting that aside, really exercise from a fat loss perspective is just a way to, uh, well, I actually said there's probably two things, but, but, but one of them is just a way to increase total daily energy expenditure. Um, and so it doesn't have to be high intensity. It doesn't have to be interval training or something like that, you know, you can, you can accumulate, you know, large amounts of very low intensity activity throughout the day. Um, and it can work just as well. And in fact, for, for competitors, um, and I've seen Eric Helms make this comment, um, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Um, you know, I think competitors, you know, prepping for contests tend to, they, they, they tend to try to do too much in terms of exercise. They start doing all this interval training and, all, and, and tons of cardio and stuff. Um, but the thing is, you're already in kind of a depleted state. You're already on a super low-calorie diet. Um, and usually, it has kind of adverse effects. Um, it's way better in those situations just to accumulate way more, I think, low-intensity activity because it's not exhausting. Um, and it's just, it's just much easier to accumulate. So, so I, so I think it's really effective both for general population and competitors. Perfect. Now, James,
0: before we move on, I I do want to mention, we have a three strike rule. If you bring up Eric Helms a third time, uh, we will end the the recording. (laughs) All right. So I got a question for you. We've talked a lot about weight loss. And obviously when we talk about working with clients, uh, weight loss often comes with some kind of goal in mind. Um, a lot of times people will have a specific body fat in mind, an actual number, a body fat percentage that they're shooting for. And I've seen you, you've got a series of articles on your website about body comp- body composition measurement, uh, very, very thorough, well-written articles. Um, what When a client tells you they want to get their body fat
2: percentage tested, how do you respond to that? Uh, The first thing I just say, I I, I discourage them from doing it. I just say, I say it's way too inaccurate. I said, uh, I just tell them the number you get, um, has, there's just a huge amount of error in it. Um, it's not going to tell you anything that, that you can't already, that basically you can't already get in terms of other tools. So, um, you know, I encourage people who are trying to lose weight, just use a combination of body weight and circumference measurements um, and maybe, you know, like how your clothes fit, things like that. That'll tell you everything you need to know. You, You don't need a body fat percentage to tell you whether you're losing fat because it's too inaccurate anyway. And in fact, I've had situations where people have clearly lost body fat, their measurements have gone down their clothes fit better and yet a body fat device like BIA will tell them that they've actually gained body fat. And that's just, it's just not a, it's just not useful. Like there's, you know, it, it's just not a useful tool for, for the vast majority of people.
0: Now you mentioned BIA, which is single frequency BIA is a garbage method. It is, I I tell my clients, if you're going to use single frequency BIA, that's fine as long as I never ever hear about it the entire time we're working together, because I'm not going to be held accountable for that random number generator. But um, what what do you think are the best methods uh, for individual use if a person insists that they they really
2: want to get it tested? Well, if someone wants to get it tested, um, you know, if you're just trying to track progress over time. I would say skin folds are probably the best. Um, but don't worry about what the number says. Um, the number is meaningless, like, you know, whatever the body fat percentage. Basically, just are your skin folds going down over time? Um, now, I'm assuming they're being measured correctly and everything. And that's kind of a, you know, assuming they're being measured correctly and and, and things like that. If your skin folds are going down over time in, t- in terms of the millimeter measurements, you're losing body fat. So, um But if someone insists on they want to get a body fat percentage, um, I tend to gravitate. I would gravitate towards either hydrostatic weighing, uh, which is basically underwater weighing, um, or DEXA. Um, But I will still reiterate that even DEXA and hydrostatic weighing can have pretty significant error rates. So um, but those are the ones that I would tend, you know, if someone insisted on doing it and they want a number, I would those are the two techniques I would probably lean towards um saying that they should do. You know something you
0: you rarely hear talked about with hydrostatic weighing is the general unpleasant nature of testing. I feel like people yeah. <laughs> drastically underestimate how not fun it is as the person being tested. You basically like if you have anything resembling a phobia of drowning, underwater weighing or hydrostatic weighing is not for you. Um, You you basically have to expel every last bit of air in your lungs while submerged. And to get a good number, typically, they'll have you do it a solid 15 or 20 times. Um, Now, you did mention DEXA. Now, just to give people an idea without getting into convoluted uh, specific statistics, if if, if your client came to you and said, James, I got my body fat tested uh, using DEXA. And the DEXA put me at fourteen percent body fat. When they say that to you, what is the range in your head of like, okay, here's what their body fat realistically might be if the DEXA gave them fourteen?
2: Yeah, um, it can actually be fairly large. I would say probably for most people, it's going to be probably plus or minus five or six points. Um, but there are some studies that can suggest even up to you know eight, nine, or ten point differences. So you know that person that came to me with fourteen. In, in my head i'm thinking well geez they could be as low as eight or nine or they could be as high as 20 i mean uh, it's uh um, it's a fairly broad broad range and now now that now it's gonna vary from one per you know some people yeah they may be fairly close to 14 other people it may be way off but the, the but the problem is there's really no way of knowing um who's way off and who isn't I can I can just say statistically, um, chances are there's going to be a there's a there's a potentially fairly broad range there. So, um, which which is why it's not useful. I mean that's such a big range. You know, eight percent. That's that's you know that's like that's pretty lean. That's that's like basically men's physique contest lean versus twenty percent, which is uh, way off of contest shape. I mean that's you know. Um, it, that's where you're carrying a fair amount of body fat. I mean, I mean you, your range there basically describes
0: the entire duration of a prep from yeah. start to finish. <laughs> so it's like, hey, we can tell you that you're somewhere in the process of your heaviest and your lightest.
1: Well, I mean, I, I think the the object lesson that at least helped a lot of people a few years ago, even though I don't see this referenced as much anymore, is uh, one of those times that Alberto Nunez, just got fucking diced, like just shredded to the bone. He went and got a DEXA in that shape. And I want to say it said he was like 9.6%, which, you know, somewhere around 10% is certainly lean, but it's not Alberto Nunez on stage lean. And and I think that, you know, just because Alberto's so well-known And people kind of know what 10% is supposed to look like, and they can juxtapose that number with how Alberto looked at the end of that prep. I think that helped kind of a mini generation of people realize that like, oh, DEXA isn't perfect. But I I think at this point, that was probably five or six years ago. So I I don't think those pictures are as well known anymore. That that would probably be worth putting in the show notes.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, it's
0: it's funny. We had a there have been times where in the lab, I would measure somebody using the same exact on the same day, same pre visit guidelines, you know, all the measurements taking place within 60, 90 minutes, and we would measure them on several different, uh, you know, using several different devices, bod pod DEXA, uh, BIA, a whole bunch of different uh, body comp tests. And they might get a range of values that covered a, you know, one one device put them at twenty, the other put them at twenty nine percent, literally at the same time under the same conditions. And after getting these like four or five different numbers, they'd say, "Okay, so what is my what's my actual body fat?" And I would just look at them and be like, "I, I don't know, probably between twenty and twenty nine, plus or minus a few percentage points in either direction." So. <laughs> 17 to 32 <laughs> like who knows And they're like well you're supposed to give me the damn answer and i'm like usually when you go in for body comp testing you walk out with more questions than answers
1: and if you want a really precise number just donate your body to science and hope that you have a way of figuring it out in the afterlife because the <laughs> only way to actually measure it and not estimate it is to you know completely break down a body melt it just see what the fat content was, which, uh, isn't very practical.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Eric, what you were talking about here, it, it actually reminds me, there's an article on my website called cheat your body fat test, where I describe the various ways that you can change your body fat percentage, um, that day of a test. Like, like there, there are all kinds of tricks you can do to manipulate the body fat percentage that you get from that device, which just shows you how how inaccurate it can be if you can if you can cheat it that easily? Definitely. Now, now, James, you you mentioned in your uh in your introduction,
0: one of the ways a lot of people know about you is through your contributions to the research in in sport nutrition and exercise science. You have an incredible skill set as it pertains to statistics. Um, so, branching out from our discussion of measurement and now into research as a whole. You know, you, you have your research review. You do research yourself. When you look at the evidence-based fitness kind of uh, field of research, so we're talking uh, exercise science with, with some sport nutrition mixed in, what do you think is the biggest area requiring improvement in our field?
2: Um, I still, I think, I think on the training side, there's still so much that we can learn. Um, and and I think the reason is, is because, because there are so many different ways you can design training programs, um, and, and because of the, even the challenges you have with measurement techniques, you know, ultrasound versus MRI for muscle mass or body comp techniques or whatever. Um, there's just a lot we don't know, you know, on the nutrition side of things, you know, and I've said this in the past, uh, you know, there's... There's really nothing groundbreaking in terms of nutrition. Um, you know, there's some interesting things that come out every now and then, but overall, from a nutrition perspective, we we pretty much have a good idea of what nutrition you need, whether it is your whether you're trying to maximize muscle or whether you're trying to lose body fat or whatever. The, you know, I would say in the next ten years, you're not going to see anything radically new in those along those lines. Um, now, from a training perspective, I think there's just a lot of still interesting stuff that, that can be done um, just because of the hundreds and hundreds of ways you can design a training program, which makes it hard to do research on training because you can't, you can't study every permutation you, ha- you can have of training programs. So you have to try to isolate a single variable, um, and even when you do that, when you isolate that variable, it still is is kind of confined to the context of that study. Um and I'll and I'll just use one example was uh the volume study that I worked on with Brad Schoenfeld. Um the one that, you know, uh this one individual in the fitness industry basically uh, got all pissy about and everything. Um <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, we did that study, um, cause we were just curious, you know, we were just curious, like, okay, like, you know, is there, we just wanted to see, is there, is there, you know, is there some upper level ceiling to volume or whatever? And, and so the, the subjects in the study actually at the highest level of volume did a, did quite a bit, uh, uh, quite a high level of volume in terms of weekly sets. I mean, I think it was for quadriceps, you know, if you count, all the compound movements and and isolation movements on quadriceps. I think it was up to like 45 weekly sets, which is pretty high. And what we found is that basically if you look at the pattern of results and it wasn't all statistically significant, but it, but, but the overall pattern showed that the more volume you did, uh, the better results you got. Um, and at the time, we, I thought, well, you know, maybe this suggests maybe that, you know, the upper ceiling to volume is maybe higher than we thought. But that's still very contextual in the sense that it's contextual in the way the study that was designed. So, um, you know, the study was uh, they did the subjects did whole body workouts um, with fairly short rest intervals, 90 second rest. They were doing squats and leg press. And I mean, if you're doing whole body workouts with that short a rest, um, that, that's pretty exhausting. Um, and, um, so the caveat there is, yeah, maybe there's a volume effect there, um, but maybe it's only in the context of the way the training program was designed. If you're doing whole body workouts with short rest intervals, you know, three days a week, because if you look at other studies that have used split routines where with longer rest periods, they don't necessarily show the same thing that we showed, um, and again, there were some people that tried to argue that <laughs> that we were trying to manipulate our data and everything to try to get what we wanted, which was one of the fucking dumbest things I've ever heard. I mean, it's like, <laughs> but um, it has nothing to do with that. It's just that, you know, there's such a variety of ways to design a training program. I mean, our results were very similar to another study on, uh, on I think it was like Brit- or Brazilian naval cadets who found pretty much the exact same thing we did. It's just that those subjects weren't, weren't uh, they were kind of untrained subjects, but they had a similar study design. It was whole body workouts, relatively short rest intervals, three days per week. Um, but again, if you look at the studies where they use split routines and different, stu- different training program designs, they don't necessarily show what we showed. And I, and I think what that does is it shows you that there's a context that you have to, you have to take all the variables into play. How was the training program designed? um, you know, what, what exercises were used, what rest intervals were used. Um, and you know, you, you can't, one study can't really tell you everything. You know, it just, it's like a very small piece of an overall puzzle. Um, and that's actually why I find training research kind of fascinating because it's a, it's a puzzle where we have very few pieces. And so there's a lot of, there's a kind of a lot of speculation and and it's interesting as we get more puzzle pieces to kind of see where things go. But I mean, you're never uh, research is never going to tell you how to train because there's just too many permutations. I mean, I think at the best research can kind of give you kind of very rough guidelines. Um, And I think that's the best it's going to do. I think some people make the mistake of thinking this study tells me exactly what, how I need to train. I I need to do this. And that's not, that's not how training research work works, especially when we consider a lot of these studies have very small numbers of subjects. I mean, we're talking, you know, 10 people per group and everything. and, And that's really just given that people vary so much in how they respond to training programs, that's really not enough people to be able to really have any anything even resembling a definitive conclusion Um, you know, it's, uh, um, all all we can say is, well, things kind of look like this, you know, maybe it suggests this, you know, um, there's, there's a lot of caveats and and nuance and and everything to, to it out there. So, um, so I guess, yeah, that's kind of my long winded answer to your, your question about that. So it sounds like on the sport nutrition side, you're like, eh, whatever, we
0: got it. But on the training side, the area for improvement you'd like to see is more data, but also seeing more ways to isolate some of these training variables uh, and see how they affect these programs. And obviously, the challenge there is, in many cases, when you tweak one variable, you inadvertently tweak others in the process. But more directly, I'd like to hear, what do you think is the biggest area requiring improvement in our field, specifically as it pertains to statistics?
2: Um, I think the big thing is is I think people might make a lot of mistakes as far as like what are p-values and what they mean and everything like that. Um, you know, people, I think, misunderstand statistical significance. Um, um, uh, what I, I wish people could understand is that, um, you know, it's not statistics, uh, you know, and data aren't black and white. It's really more telling you. Um, it, it's all just probabilities and, and kind of gives you an idea of, of which way things kind of lean and, and gives you an idea of the strength of the evidence. Um, but it doesn't, it, it's not, you know, for example, just because something is statistically significant doesn't mean there's a real effect there. And likewise, just because something's not statistically significant doesn't mean there's no effect there. It's really more trying to I wish people can understand. Um, I think people struggle with the nuance of it all, and how you know it's not black or white. There's there's like all kinds of shades of gray, and um, you can take the same two people can take the same study with the same statistics and actually interpret the data differently. And neither one of them are really wrong. N- neither person is really wrong. It's just it's just a matter of interpretation. You're you're basically just trying to interpret very incomplete data. Um, And, um, you know, it's, um, I I think the biggest thing I think people need to take away from statistics is uh, statistics are just a tool to kind of give you an idea of which way things are leaning in terms of probability. Yeah, this is, it's probably this, um, and in some cases, you can say with stronger evidence, okay, that um, it kind of helps weigh the strength of the evidence. Okay, well, this study, um, the statistics say, yeah, oh, this is this is pretty good. Another study says, oh, well, it's leaning this way, but we can't, you know, it's um, it's not very strong. Um, I, I would love to see. Um, Uh, And there's a push for this in the overall literature, at least in the, in the non-exercise literature to kind of move away from like P values and things like that to more, um, uh, more, um, subjective interpretations of, of evidence and, and, uh, and maybe gradations of evidence. like how strong the evidence is, um, and even there, it's like, it's just such a subjective world. I mean, it's like, um. Like I said, I mean, you can have two really smart people look at the exact same data and the same statistics, and actually have slightly different conclusions. And they both, and you really can't say which person is wrong because it's it's incomplete data in the first place. So, so I don't know if that answers your question. Um, uh, I, I just I think people should understand that there's just there's so much gray area when it comes to. Scientific evidence and statistics and everything you know there's no um there's there's really no hard and fast answers on things yeah i mean the, the more I talk to people that uh do statistics and
0: and do their statistics thoughtfully uh the more I hear people reiterate some of those same points of like we the more you do stats and again do them thoughtfully, not just kind of follow a checklist and go through it you start to develop an appreciation for, like, these aren't black and white complete rules. We're talking about different strategies. Um, and so, like, an example, you mentioned two people can look at the same results done the same way and have different interpretations. But if you give two different people the same data set, they might yield different actual outcomes. Yeah. Oh, th-
1: there there was a really, really cool study looking at that, oh, maybe three or four years ago or so, where... Um what they did is they took a big data set looking and basically it it was looking at like uh, penalties, like fouls in football or soccer for our American listeners. Um, And basically they, they gave this data set to a bunch of different research groups, like 30 or 40 different research groups or like statisticians and basically said, Hey, we want to know if players of color are more likely to get carded for similar infractions uh, when compared to white players. And, you know, basically gave them the data set and said, you analyze this whichever way you think is best and most appropriate. And what they came up with was responses ranging all the way from, I want to say like a non-significant effect in favor of white players actually getting carded more often, all the way to really, really huge effects showing players of color getting carded more often and literally everything in between just based on different choices for model selection and what covariates to take into account and whatnot. Um, and, and that was, I think, a really cool study that you know just illustrates th- the degree to which uh, assumptions and decisions made prior to data analysis are unfortunately, more realistically, probably during data analysis uh, can, can really impact what sort of results you wind up with. Uh, and this is my own personal hobby horse. This is one of the reasons why I think that it needs to become much more common practice for researchers to share their primary data set, because the way that they chose to analyze it very well may be a completely appropriate way to do it, but it's probably not the only way to do it. Uh, and if the data is there and available for other people to dig into, um, you know, if you don't agree with the way the researchers analyzed it, you can just reanalyze it yourself.
2: Yeah, I would totally agree with you, Greg, on that. I, I, I like the idea of, of data, more data sets becoming publicly available and everything. Um, you know, and I also think, I would love to see the exercise science community um, do more like pre-registration of trials, things like that, where they kind of outline um, their data sets or outline what they're going to do ahead of time. Um, not that that prevents, you know, any type of manipulation or anything like that, but it at least, you know, um, you know, it, it forces me, it at least gives an idea that people are planning ahead of what they're going to do and not not deciding after the fact. Um, perfect example, Greg, of actually what you just talked about in terms of publicly available data. So, so there was that, that low carb study that came out from, uh, um, David Ludwig and his group, um, recently, um, where they showed that these, uh, low carb people had, had a better, um, energy expenditure during weight maintenance. Um, but you know, the data sets publicly available and, and Kevin Hall went back through the data and basically reanalyzed it and basically showed, well, that's, uh, show that the data wasn't, you know, the, the, the conclusions that David Ludwig had come to, came to wasn't really supported by the data. Um, and then even I did some of my own analysis of the data because I'm one of these people that I think, you know, um, if the, data, if the data is fairly robust towards a certain conclusion, then it should be fairly robust towards the type of analyses you do. Um, but if, if I do different statistical analyses and I get quite a bit different answers, um, then that tells me the data is probably not very robust um, in terms of whatever conclusion was made. Um, and that's actually what I found even with the Ludwig data. Um, I ran some analyses on it that were different from what Kevin Hall did. And, and I, 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 didn't come up with, you know, um, uh, similar conclusions, uh, um, you know, bas- and, and I was doing analyses that were, you know, perfectly appropriate for the data. Um, just like, you know, I would say David Ludwig's analyses were appropriate, but it just, it, it wasn't robust to, you know, violations of assumptions or um, you know, or, or other factors in the data. So so yeah, I would say I, I think there definitely needs to be more, you know, publicly available data. And that gets back to your
0: point of viewing stats as, um, you know, not these hard rules where there's one way to do it and one way to interpret it. But, you know, it, it always kills me when people uh, interpret it that way and say, no, the p-value was less than 0.05. So we know this worked. And you're like, yeah, but if they chose a slightly different post-hoc test, that p-value becomes 0.07 and now it completely turns everything we know about the world upside down. (laughs) That doesn't seem like a very sensible way to approach this stuff.
2: You know what I mean? (laughs) No, and people love to have like thresholds and categories and stuff. Um, And the world of, again, the world of science doesn't really work that way. It's not like there's some dividing line that makes something a, a true result versus not a true result. It's all... Um, it's all just kind of a shade of gray and, and, and basically making statements about, okay, well, the evidence favors this. How much does it favor it by, uh, you know, by this much or whatever? You know, I mean, that, that's really what it, what it comes down to. I mean, it's kind of like the weatherman, right? So the weatherman, he makes predictions on the weather and he doesn't tell you, okay, it's going to rain or it's not going to rain. He tells you, okay, well, we've got maybe a, a, an eighty percent chance of rain. So if it doesn't rain, that doesn't mean the weatherman was wrong. I mean, it was still rel- well within the realm of probability that it, that it wasn't going to rain. You know, um, I, I even saw people make this. You know, I'm I, again, I'm a big stat fan, um, and I love the website Five Thirty Eight. I, I think Nate, Nate Silver does a really good job on in terms of statistical analysis of various things from sports to, uh, politics and, and, and stuff like that. And of course, you know, during the, the 2016 election, you know, his analysis favored that Hillary Clinton would win. And I think in the, in the one or two days before the election, basically he, he had given, uh, Hillary Clinton, I think basically like a two out of three chance of winning. Um, well, of course, uh, Donald Trump won the election and so then everyone started piling on Nate silver saying or, or or whenever I would actually you know quote Nate silver on things they'd be like well but he clearly got the election wrong but he didn't get the election wrong in fact if you look at it he gave Donald Trump the best probability of winning out of any other you know political analyst analytic website you know a one out of three chance is still a reasonable chance to win you know so um, I, I think people need to you know, I think people struggle when they when they try to think in terms of probabilities. It's not it's not um, you know, again, it's not a sure thing, um, you know, to, to really understand probabilities like you'd have to rerun that same election to, to know whether Nate Silver was truly wrong or not. You'd have to run that same election, you know, like 100 times. And if Nate Silver was right, well, Donald Trump would win 33 out of 100 times, and Hillary Clinton would have won, you know, the other 66 or 67 times. So um, that's how probabilities work, you know.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, back to your example about the weather, you know, the the weather forecaster is going to tell you 80% chance of rain. They're also probably going to tell you whether, you know, it might be an all-day drizzle or you need to start putting... Boards across your windows and maybe get to higher ground, right? They're yeah. going to tell you some estimate of a magnitude and some estimate of a probability. And, and I'm with you. I think that the more that we start viewing statistics that way, uh, the better for the field. Now, a follow-up question. On, on this podcast, we don't get shy about talking about stats, as, as you're obviously aware now. Every now and then, we predict where we see things going in the future, in terms of how the field uses statistics. So in the past, we've talked about, you know, more sharing of data or open access data. We've talked about uh, maybe multi-center trials for different exercise interventions. Um, We've also talked about, you know, shifting toward other types of analyses, you know, using more Bayesian uh, methods, uh, potentially using more uh, linear mixed models that incorporate random effects, Where do you see things going, uh, specifically as it pertains to statistics in the field?
2: Yeah, I would actually kind of agree with. In fact, before you mentioned the Bayesian uh, analyses, I that was one thing that popped in my head when you were kind of asking the question. I would like to see things go more in that direction, Um, um, or at least just get away from these hard, uh, you know, at least get away from these, you know, statistically significant versus non-significant. Um, And instead, you know what, just report a p-value, you know, and let the researchers decide, you know, how to interpret that data Um, rather than having these these cutoff points and these and and turning things into categories and things like that. um, I'm a big fan of just just report your data, you know, talk how you interpret it. And let other people, and you know, if they're going to interpret it differently, they're going to interpret differently. I, I, I really, I would also like to see the field just do more complete reporting of data. Um, and you are starting to see that some more. Um, you know, you're seeing more journal articles with supplementary materials, things like that, because, because um, I, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten frustrated where I'll be reading a paper and I'll be like. Why didn't they report you know, like like Why didn't they report confidence intervals in this study or 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 why didn't they you know or or, or studies where they didn't report the p values at all They'll just say well p was was greater than 0.05 I'll be like well what if it was 0.06 Like like uh, you know I, I just I want to see more transparency and just uh, complete reporting of data sets and and yeah a move towards less binary type statistical decision making and more um, more finding ways to uh um basically grade the strength of evidence versus versus uh you know by like I said the strength of ev- evidence versus binary decisions. Yeah,
0: don't you love that when they say, well the p-value is over 0.05 and you're like, yeah, you had seven people in the group. Of course it was. Give me the yeah. damn actual information. <laughs> So James, this is a question we ask a lot of our guests. Um, obviously, you you train and, and you coach others as well. As a coach, do you use any strategies that lack scientific substantiation or even some strategies that maybe go against the grain when it comes to the current consensus in the evidence-based fitness community?
2: Oh yeah, I do. I mean, because again, it's like I talked about earlier, the research can't cover everything in terms of training. So, so, so there are things that you do that, maybe maybe kind of speculative um maybe um you know maybe there's a little bit of evidence out there but nothing really strong um you know things like um you know something i like to do with my own training or some of my my clients training is i like to kind of cycle volume approaches so i like to kind of progress from a lower volume to higher volume um until they kind of plateau in progress and then maybe back their volume off again and start again you know I will say there's not it's there's really no research to suggest that that approach is better than others. You know there's some I would say theoretical reasons why it might be good, but you know that's that's mainly speculation on my part. It's not you know I'm just doing some things that you know I think there's probably a reasonable uh, there's. There's a sound. There's a sound reasoning behind it. It could be inaccurate. You know, maybe some studies will come out showing that I'm completely wasting my time doing it that way, and that's fine. I'm totally open to being wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, I yeah, I'm an evidence-based guy, but I do things that you know don't have a solid basis in evidence. Because if if I tried to do everything that had a solid basis of evidence, I I don't even know how to design training programs because there's no. Like I said, studies can't tell you everything.
0: Right. And you also have a secret insulin suppression uh, strategy to help promote fat burning. Is that hey, right? You weren't supposed to talk about that on this podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Your clients told me that you were just throwing people off the scent so you could keep that uh, <laughs> keep that as your uh, your main drawing point for clients.
1: No, I, I mean, what, what, one of the things that I always like to say is like, if someone doesn't know anything about research and is not at all conversant in the literature I tend to be somewhat skeptical of what they have to say like I'm not going to dismiss it outright but it does make me more skeptical I also get skeptical if someone purports to have citations for literally everything they do when they train clients because then it's like well, I mean, it, it, at what point is your experience as a practitioner coming into play here? Like how could you possibly rely on research for every decision you make when coaching humans? So, I, yeah, I, I think I think it is all about kind of striking striking that balance and you know, just figuring it out like what what's most appropriate for for you and your clients.
0: Yeah, you don't want to be getting your <laughs> your client's training program straight from the table in a research study because that is a plain ass boring ass training program
2: right but what are you talking about i put all my clients on the schoenfeld high volume protocol (laughs) exactly
1: (laughs) well there is at least one person out there who would very much like you to videotape one of your clients going through (laughs) the protocol uh as I understand it, there's a bounty on it or something like that. I oh, know. really? <laughs> I don't know. Probably. I I, che- I checked out of that drama in like January of this. Year. I know. I know. <laughs> I, I have no idea what the current developments are. I know. I
2: checked out of it a long time too. So it's funny. I, I still hear little things through the grapevine every now and then. You know, people will say, "Oh, did you hear this?" I'm like, "No, I don't. I don't even. <laughs> I don't even pay attention to it anymore." So
0: James, if you didn't want to deal with bounties on a regular basis, I don't know why you would get into the fitness industry. (laughs) This is very serious business. All right. Well, James, we've taken up a bunch of your time and and we we sincerely appreciate it. Um, For our listeners who would like to to stay in touch with you or stay up to date with your work, where can people find you online?
2: Uh, Yeah, you can just go to my website, weightology.net. Um, I've got a bunch of articles on there, actually some of the articles we talked about my insulin series, my body comp series, um, you know, it's free for everybody on there. Um, um and, uh, and yeah, and then I have my research review and then I also have got, uh, you know, coaching and, um, all that other stuff. So, so yeah, weightology.net and also all my social media accounts are on there. So if people want to follow me, they, they can use those as well.
0: Perfect. Well, James, uh, it was great talking with you. Um, Hope to see you again sometime soon. Uh, I'm sure we'll run into you at a fitness conference uh, in the near future. But until then, uh, thanks for joining us. Take care and uh, we'll talk to you later.
2: Yeah, guys, thanks for
0: having me. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.